Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone. I hope you're all doing well. With the summer slowly fading away and fall approaching, soon will come a spooky season. I think we're all ready for that. In the meantime, though, let's not dive into a few scary stories and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. My team was deployed to a bottomless lake, and we discovered a new species of cryptid, written by Mr. Mills of 45. You would think that after traveling to an entirely different universe and nearly getting destroyed by an alternate version of a cryptid you used to hunt other ghastly abominations with, you would end up securing yourself a vacation. But no, not me. Not in this job. The 8% salary increase was nice, sure, but I still had to keep chugging along just like everyone else. It's just what happens when you work for the agency. Are there worse jobs? Absolutely. But who doesn't have fun complaining every now and then about their profession? So today, I sat in the briefing room with five other agents while our director of operations, Jennifer, went over the objective and details of the up-and-coming mission. One of our transport choppers carrying highly sensitive data went down over a lake, writing these coordinates. The secret coordinates that were given to us directly by the CIA themselves, she announced, pointing to a large monitor behind her that displayed as satellite imagery and analytics. Um, why do we need a fully armed extermination team just to go to a lake and recover some documents and files? With all due respect, that seems like a waste of resources. Came Agent Ashley. Jennifer didn't answer the question. And instead, as she looked over and nodded at me, signaling for me to stand up and present the information that I had been given as mission supervisor. I did as instructed, leaving my weapon on my seat before backing up and facing the room. Dr. Garth, I began referring to our head scientist. And his team as well as members of the reconnaissance squad have confirmed the area is infested with cryptid activity. So much so that it is not on any official public maps and civilians are restricted from going within 5 miles of the area. There will be a total of 8 personnel in this operation. Us, the 6 man team of agents, as well as Director Jennifer and Dr. Garth, who will be waiting a quarter of a mile away from the drop off point in order to obtain samples of the lake and surrounding environment for further study. You will also all be given flares in order to signal when you've collected the data as a contingency in case something goes wrong with communications. I then looked over at Jennifer, nodding for her to pick it up from there. Dr. Garth and myself will be in a high-tech armored van that will be trailing behind the transport helicopter. I'll be on the comms and even though this is not our usual setup, 
We expect you all to be flexible and follow procedure regardless. Any questions? What do we have to do if your van gets compromised or surrounded? Asked Agent Melody. Oh, it'll be just fine, Jennifer said, flashing her a confident smile before turning to point at the screen once again. Up came a 3D model of what looked to be what Jennifer was referring to. The van is heavily armored, completely resistant to high caliber gunfire and blasts up to the equivalent of a moderate C4 charge. Dr. Garth and I will be well protected. Oh man, if that's the case, why can't we all be in a vehicle like that? Came Jake, one of the more cocky and reckless agents in Site 12. The landscape doesn't allow for us to be driving anywhere close to the crash site itself. It would be both impractical and a waste of budget dollars. Jennifer clapped back. Those things cost a fortune. Regardless, it didn't take much longer to finish up the rest of the meeting. I interacted with Melody and Terrace on the side as we loaded stuff onto the transport chopper. Feeling as if our previous operation had brought us somewhat close together. I mean, if you ask me. Terrence began grunting as he lifted a heavy bag of ammo and slung it into the vehicle. This is going to be a lot better than last time. I gotta agree with you on that one, Melody chimed in, slipping both a knife and a flare into her utility belt. We had to be a bit on the DL when talking about that kind of thing. Jennifer would get mad if we spilled any details of the operation that we were referring to. So I was purposefully vague on things that I let slip regarding it and told Terrence and Melody to follow suit. But of course, there's always someone who has to come sticking their nose where it doesn't belong. What about last time? Came Agent Jake, standing there as he holstered his Desert Eagle. There was a bit of sarcasm in his tone, like he was practically looking for a fight. But being a boss has its perks when dealing with people like this. Oh, it's really none of your concern. I said attempting to take things lightly at first. What? I can't be let in on a few secrets. Did you forget who we work for? He chuckled, ending it with a stare that I assumed was supposed to come off as a subtle challenge. No. Did you forget who we work for? Do you want to get us terminated or something? I said, a bit of a snarl at the end of my tone. Indeed, I'll admit it was a little bit harsh at the time, but he had been complained about by his fellow agents more than once and for good reason. Jake stood his ground against my initial response but still stepped away and got on the chopper as he quietly laughed to himself. I hadn't supervised him more than a few times but I did know that he wanted to pick the worst hills to die on. But leaving that aside for the time being, it wasn't long before everything was loaded up and all six of us, well seven if you include the pilot, headed off. The ride itself wasn't very long, only about an hour or so. At the very least, we got to see some decent sights and beautiful wilderness on our way there. Melody attempted to make some conversation with Agent Martha, who had always been competent but rather quiet and meek in her personality. Her confidence shined through her work rather than her social mannerisms. Not that this job exactly pushed big personalities in the usual sense. 
Ashley and Martha audibly gasped as we reached the lake, which itself was surrounded by a plethora of oak trees, a few of which had actually been halfway submerged in the water. The brush and growth around the lake looked thick, far too thick to drive any non-off-road vehicle through. At most, you could probably get away with an ATV going through there. Down below, I could have sworn that I had spotted some sort of large displacement in the water, as if a colossal-sized creature was swimming just beneath the surface. The slug creature Terrence, Melody and I had met when we dimension hopped, came to mind. Perhaps it was our reality's version of him, as absurd as it may sound. Alright, two minutes from the drop-off point, I announced to the rest of the team, sharpening my tone to grab their attention. Make sure your rifles are loaded, belts are full, and visor cameras are on. It's going to be a risky operation, but our duty to do it nonetheless. The pilot guided the chopper over to the rather tight opening in the trees towards the west side of the lake. I looked out and spotted Dr. Garth and Jennifer's van driving up an off-road, not too far away from the outer tree line. It turned, making a right into the forest surrounding the lake. Disappearing underneath the green canopy, it looked to be a bumpy ride. But that particular area was their only option as far as getting their van anywhere near the lake. The evening sun was slowly falling. If things went our way, we wouldn't have to use our night vision goggles. But that was the best case scenario. I honestly always hated the things. Regardless, the chopper hit the ground and we all immediately exited and began grabbing supplies. I ordered Jake to stand off to the side and keep watch around the perimeter of the chopper, just to give him something to do while the rest of us got the gear together. Oh, so I'm the guard dog all of a sudden, huh? He vocalized before reluctantly turning to scan the tree line, making a show of it in order to rile me up. There's heavy cryptid activity here. Did you not listen to the briefing? Ashley remarked, causing Jake to childishly mock her. Their little bickering goes no further as I tell them both to cut it out. We were even just about ready to go before a sudden and booming bang erupted from within the trees, causing all of us to raise our weapons and step into a circular formation. It sounded to me as if a large branch had fallen off a tree and smashed into the ground, but a bit more forceful than just that, like it had been slammed rather than simply falling, but there was no visual to match, so I radioed over to Jennifer. This is Agent Ron. Possible chance of hostile encounter. We're keeping our eyes peeled. As expected, stay safe and keep your weapons ready, she replied, with a bit of interference coming through, but not enough to completely distort what she was saying. But I guess that was to be expected in a place like this. We waited around for a few minutes, anticipating that something would emerge from deeper in the forest and come right towards us. But alas, it appeared that it was either nothing, or a creature simply didn't want to show itself. For now. So I ordered the team to start following me to the crashed chopper site and then told the pilot who had dropped us off to fly it for the time being and circle around the lake, which itself was only a few feet off to the left of us. It was an immediate drop off from the ground into the water with next to no slope. 
The unarmed recon team that had been here previously said that they had used sonar devices in order to try and measure the depth of the water. Now this following piece of information is only known between Jennifer I and the higher ups, but from what the reports have stated, the lake somehow or some way appeared to not actually have a bottom. Now basic logic would dictate that that's impossible, but then again, look where I work. But regardless of whether or not the lake's depth was truly infinite, I did not want to take the plunge to find out. I had enough with liquid abysses back on the alternate earth. I couldn't even imagine what kind of monstrosities could lurk in an infinite body of water. And even though I was the only one who knew the truth, I could tell the rest of the squad was on edge just from all the noises alone. We had marched less than a hundred meters along the edge before the alarming sound that we had heard earlier emerged again, and this time notably coming from further forward. We all rushed forward, me taking the lead as we all climbed over a fallen tree and made our way through some thick brush, laying eyes upon a sight that I'll admit was a bit of a spectacle. There were two creatures just around 50 feet in front of us, one of them being on land just several feet away from the water, and the other emerging from the lake itself. I signaled for the team to keep their weapons raised, but to hold their fire as it had not noticed us yet. The creature that had part of its mass sticking from the water looked to be what I could only describe as some sort of aquatic reptile-humanoid hybrid. It was certainly tall, well over seven feet of its body was visible above the surface. Its head was long and narrow, possessing a snout like a Komodo dragon. On its back, it had disturbingly sharp scales that stuck out like miniature blades designed to protect itself against attacks from behind. Its two arms were surprisingly human-shaped in nature, save for them being covered in dark green reptilian scales. The creature's hands were outfitted with six webbed fingers, that had multiple inch-long nails protruding from the tips. But the beast's face was probably the worst part. It had narrow, vertical slit eyes that glowed a scarlet red color which pierced through the slowly darkening forest as the sun set. The creature in the midst of attacking, though, couldn't have been more different in its anatomy. It was much shorter, probably around the six-foot mark, but its general mass and surface area far surpassed the reptilian beast. This cryptid was almost octopus-like in appearance, standing on three bulky legs with feet supporting them that were thin and rake-like, possessing long and spine-tingling toenails that resembled hog talons after a healthy dose of growth serum. Its rather sickly mucus-colored skin was abundantly covered in short brown hairs, similar to that of a tarantula, from what I assumed was the front half of its body, protruded ten several-feet-long tentacle-like appendages that waved and swung wildly as these two horrific titans fought to the death with one another. I couldn't make out any further features like a mouth, eyes, or ears. Just that, a clump of hairy flesh and tentacles. Truly the stuff of every child's Lovecraftian nightmare. The reptilian beast fully lunged out of the water with a reverberating, almost gargling roar. 
and attempted to pounce on the tentacle creature and slash his limbs like butter, but was quickly grabbed by two of his opponent's appendages and slammed it clean through a nearby tree trunk with explosive force. Jennifer, are you getting this? I said quietly speaking into my radio. Yeah, we see it. Make sure to tell the rest of the team not to engage just yet. We could get some valuable intel on these things. The tree the lizard had been thrown through slowly tilted forward and began to fall, plunging right into the lake and leaving a colossal splash in its wake. All of us watching in utter amazement and shock, as the half that had been severed from the rest of the trunk sank below the surface of the lake, plunging into the depths below. I say we blast those things into high heaven, uttered Jake with a forceful whisper, interrupting my gaze as the reptilian creature recovered and came charging at the octopus-like horror. Slicing off a tentacle with his claws and allowing the severed limb to begin spewing a medallion-colored blood all over the ground in front of it. No, we wait to let them fight it out. I quickly shot back. So, what happens when there's more or they see us? Man, you know ever since Jennifer has taken over this place, it's gone soft. Whatever happened to seeing something that isn't right and filling it full of holes? This ain't the way that we used to do things. He went on arguing like a teenager who had just been denied permission to leave the house. I could hear him adjusting his grip on his rifle in order to prepare to fire a shot at the cryptids. I had had enough at that point, turning around and disarming Jake before grabbing him by the collar and yanking him towards me. He quickly went for his knife, only to be stopped before his fingers were even on the handle, when Melody had put the barrel of her rifle against his temple. Try it and your brains are on the ground, she whispered snarled, moving her finger to the trigger of her weapon. I let go of Jake but silently signaled for everyone else to disable their visor cameras and just temporarily and make sure they hadn't activated their radios. Myself included so then Jennifer or command wouldn't be able to document what was about to happen. After which I ordered Melody to keep her gun trained on Jake while I kept his rifle underneath my foot staring him down while more furious than ever before. I don't know who you think you are or what you think you're doing, but you're going to get us all killed. I said in the loudest voice possible that wouldn't alert the creatures who were still going at it. Disobeying my orders and acting like a reckless moron, and just generally being insufferable. You're being insubordinate to the point of threatening the safety of your team. I'm your mission supervisor and therefore I'm your boss. Like me or not, you're stuck with it. This is a job and not a high school physics class. Do your whining after the operation because none of us want to hear it. You really think she didn't see any of that? I had my visor camera on. Jake scoffed. Then I'll come up with something to cover your behind. That wasn't for me, it was for you. Because trust me when I say that dealing with me is a joyride compared to what Jennifer will do to you. Both Terrence and Melody smiled, amused at how I just publicly reprimanded Jake in front of the others. All in all, it wasn't something that I enjoyed, but he had been acting like a child. A child that was in need of some discipline. Alright, now all of you switch back on your visor cameras and don't want Jennifer getting... 
I began only to have my sentence cut off midway through, as I was violently bashed into a fallen tree nearby, my back impacting it with brutal force as I dropped my own rifle into my lap. Sir, shouted what I heard to be Agent Martha before gunfire quickly rang out. I opened my eyes and caught what looked to be the reptilian creature leaping forward and attempting to slash Jake's throat from where I had just been standing several seconds ago, only to be blasted with bullets by both Melody and Martha, killing the beast with relative ease. It appeared to have won its fight against the tentacle monstrosity, and it had converged over to our spot after likely smelling our scents or hearing our voices. I don't actually think we were nearly as quiet as we had intended to be. The giant lizard hit the ground with a lifeless thud, and green blood pouring from all the bullet holes that it now had thanks to Melody and Martha. I got up, not feeling any significant damage or that anything was broken. I'm assuming the beast had shoulder bashed me or something of the sort. Nothing that pierced my gear or skin. I scooped up my rifle and walked back over to the rest of the team. I focused my eyes on the body of the creature, ensuring that its minimal movements were nothing more than post-death twitching. I wasn't sure of the official term for it yet, but I didn't even get a chance to talk with the other agents once making it back to them. Look out! Martha shouted as two more of the reptilian creatures suddenly leapt out from the lake. The resulting splash sending water our way as they landed on the ground, while the left one charged and the right one had stayed closer to the water. I quickly backed up before firing my rifle, unleashing a hail of bullets on the left one, but due to missing my first few shots, he was able to get a good slash at Martha with its right claw, sending her flying back several feet, while blood came gushing from her chest. No, Ashley cried as she continued firing her weapon, her and I making a dual effort to fill Martha's attacker full of holes. The creature screeched and roared before quickly falling to the ground limp, blood pouring from all of its wounds, while the one on the right lunged at Melody, smacking her weapon from her hand as she fired two shots off into his body. And just as the creature had raised a claw and let out a triumphant roar to presumably tear her throat out, Terran successfully shot it twice in the head, all of us watching in relief as its body collapsed backwards and fell right into the water, sinking like a rock once hitting the surface. I quickly ordered Jake, Ashley, Terrence, and Melody to switch their visor cameras and radios back on and then to watch the surrounding area as I rushed over to Martha, who was appearing to be on death's door. I knelt down as she held her bleeding chest, dark red stains all over her gloves and rifle. Her breathing was slow and pained. What's going on out there? Why did we lose signal with you guys? Came an angry Jennifer through my radio. I held down on the button and responded by keeping my eyes focused on Martha as she spit out a hunk of blood and saliva to her right. Had an encounter. All hostile cryptids are taken care of. Martha's down now, I said. Hiding my bits of despair. I never knew her well, sure, but she was a good agent and hadn't done me any wrong. Jennifer didn't respond. 
so I simply stood up, hesitantly gripping and raising my rifle as Martha began to choke out on her own blood, her suffering only becoming more torturous with each moment that had passed. Do it, she stuttered as red ran down her chin. Make it quick, it hurts. I pointed my barrel at her, and at the very least, I'd be putting her out of her misery. She was on death's doorstep regardless. But Jennifer would have a field day if she caught me disobeying procedure. I'm sure that I was already on thin ice with that stun I pulled with, cutting off her communications temporarily. I pulled the trigger. The blast ringing out through the trees as Martha went fully limp and slumped over. Her short-lived pain finally being ended. I took a second, let out a slow, deep exhale, and then turned my attention back over to the team and pointed a finger at Jake's face. Now make sure you don't see the feel for years after this, I growled, only for Jennifer to come through my specific radio, still sounding irritated. What happened? What's he doing out there? I've got it covered for now, I responded, testing my luck a bit by using a snappy tone. Luckily, she hadn't decided to call me out on it, instead ordering me to command the team to collect a couple blood samples from the creatures and then go forward and follow me as we continued our way to the helicopter, which at the time was kind of impossible, seeing as we didn't have any sort of equipment to collect samples with. Unless she just wanted me to lick the blood up and then have Dr. Garth extract it from my tongue later on. We didn't really get any time to truly recover or take a mental break from the chaos of what had just taken place. That's not how we do things here in the agency. Instead, we had to move on, continue the mission, and reach the objective. I've seen worse, far worse than this. But it was an event that could have been so easily prevented that it made my blood boil right under my skin. And I'll be honest when I say that I had a part to play. If I had just handled things slightly differently, Martha might still be alive. As I said, we weren't close friends or anything, but her death didn't have to happen. Once we gathered what we needed, we pressed on, walking another 60 or so meters before taking a wide left and clearing through some brush. I had Melody stand guard with Terrence and Ashley, while forcing Jake to help me scout for a better and more precise path forward. As I wanted to keep a close eye on him from this point onward, I had Terrence strap the ammo bag along his back and carry it, seeing as he was the biggest and the strongest of us. Careful, Jennifer said rather suddenly over the radio. The van is picking up some movement about 40 feet in front of you guys. I paused and for once, Jake and I shared a look with each other that wasn't anger or irritation, but mutual confusion, as we hadn't seen anything out of the ordinary. Did you mean in the water? I inquired, trying to look for whatever it was that she was referring to. Garth and I can't actually tell. Something's interfering with their systems back in the van, she replied her voice becoming a bit more distorted with each word that she spoke. Yeah, I think I can hear you starting to break up. Do you have any idea what the source is? I grilled rather frantically, 
receiving an answer that I couldn't understand. I could tell that she tried her best to speak clearly, but it was useless. I couldn't make out a single word as the quality rapidly declined. Jennifer, hello. Can you still get visual through our visor cameras? I went on, making a futile effort to get something comprehensible. I told the others to let me know if they could understand anything she was saying, but it was useless. All of their radios were going bad, just as mine had, so it was going to be a case of us being in the dark, cut off from help that wasn't each other. Alright everyone, stay alert and stay on your toes. We need to find whatever is cutting off our signal and destroy it. You got it? I announced, shifting to face them all. Attempting to uphold some form of morale despite the tension as a result of everything that had transpired thus far. You're a good leader, Ron. We'll get through this just like we've gotten through everything else, Terrence said, offering a head nod as a sign of respect, which I returned. We had still not spotted what Jennifer had been talking about, so instead I turned my attention to the lake itself, and just at the right time too. There was a displacement in the water that had been at least 200 feet in length and several feet wide, making it clear that something massive was swimming just beneath the surface. I saw Jake getting ready to fire his weapon, so I simply turned my head and gave him a you-better-not-glance to stop him. And at the very least, it seemed he learned to listen a bit better this time around. Look, Melody suddenly erupted, pointing a finger forward towards the displacement in the water. Although it was a bit difficult to see at first, I laid eyes upon what looked to be some sort of glowing emerald and green patterns in the shape of jagged lines, similar to that of lightning bolts. I couldn't actually see what the actual source of it was. All I knew was that they belonged to whatever colossal-sized beast they were attached to. But just as we were making an effort to get closer, a more detailed look at the thing, it dove down deeper into the water, deep enough to where its glowing lines couldn't be seen any longer. Guess this one isn't looking for a fight, Melody said, practically reading my mind. No, it's not. We need to bait it to the surface, I added. What if we use one of the creature's bodies? Surely the smell of the blood will draw it up. Ashley had interjected. Now that right there is thinking on your feet, I complimented. Going over with the team to grab both a tentacle from the hairy creature and then an arm from the reptilian creature to bring it over. Once we had both, we went right back over to where the creature had originally nearly surfaced. I laid the tentacle down right over the edge of the bank, letting the blood drip and pour into the water. I told Terrence to do the same thing with the severed reptilian arm, allowing the green blood to fall right into the water below. It mixed together with the blood of the tentacle creature, creating a sickly brown color. We then all took several steps back and aimed our rifles at the surface of the water. Now we wait, I declared giving a confident glance to the rest of the team. But it wasn't long before we got exactly what we had wanted. After only mere minutes, I looked down into the lake and saw the glowing green lines beginning to approach the surface at a rapid pace, as if the creature was charging up from deep below, like a great white shark hunting a seal. 
Eventually, it broke the surface like a missile, blasting a wall of water our way as we opened fire. The actual monstrosity in question was what looked to be a giant sea snake of some sort, only revealing about a dozen or so feet of its actual body length. Its skin was black, almost tar-like in the appearance of its texture. The glowing green lines ran across its back, now made brighter due to them being out of the murky water. It had several eyes that ran across both the sides and top of its head, all of them a lifeless milky white, giving the creature a ghostly and demonic look. It was something straight out of a Lovecraft novel, but it simply laid there several feet above the water as we fired round after round into it with no result. The bullets were going into its skin and that much was obvious, but no blood or any signs of pain from the cryptid were being shown. Instead, it almost seemed to smile, bearing its massive fangs at us like we were about to become its dinner. Come on and just die, Ashley screamed, attempting to reload quickly as the rest of us kept unloading on the thing. But suddenly the lines on its back glowed even brighter and it began to stretch out vertically, becoming both longer and wider than they previously had been when the serpent had revealed even more of its body. I thought that it had just been him rising further and further above the surface, until it dawned on me what was actually happening. Our gunfire, it was only making him bigger and therefore stronger. I had seen things like this before, the matter of our many bullets was being manipulated and used by the creature to add to its own mass. Every round we fired into this thing and only made things worse for us. Cease fire, I cried out to the team. Fall back, get out of the way. And nearly everyone did. Melody, Terrence, and Ashley did that is. But Jake, well, he was too stubborn for his own good. And this time it was going to cost him. The other four of us stopped attempting to pump rounds into this thing and turned to run away, as it looked like it could attack at any moment. But Jake foolishly attempted to stand his ground. Idiot! I growled while gritting my teeth, before dropping my rifle and running over to him to try and move him out of the way as the serpent leaned backward and opened its mouth, preparing to lunge down at Jake from an angle. But I, of course, was too slow. The giant snake thrust itself forward and downward before clamping its mouth around Jake. He didn't even have time to scream, being immediately crushed under the immense pressure of this thing's bite. The large serpent then pulled back with Jake's body in its mouth, only his legs visible and sticking out from the creature's jaws. But they, of course, weren't moving. Nothing was save for the red that came pouring out from the creature's mouth as it shook and violently thrashed with Jake's body still in its mouth. The serpent then slithered backwards, slowly pulling its visible mass back into the water and disappearing into the abyss below with its kill. Jennifer, Jennifer, can you hear me? I yelled. The combined adrenaline and subsequent shock overwhelming me in the moment. There was still nothing. We were cut off confirming to me that something about that oversized snake was the cause of it. He, he didn't yell or anything, came Ashley, a stutter in her speech. 
didn't like the guy very much, but he didn't deserve that, Terrence added. I second that. A pretty crappy way to go. Melody vocalized, adding on to Terrence's sentiment. We have to do more than just kill it. We have to destroy it, I declared. We won't be able to establish the connection with Jennifer again until we do so. How do we take out something like that? It can literally absorb bullets. Ashley rebuts, still just a bit frantic. Well, then we have to try a different kind of weapon. Melody interjects, just before a shift in her eyes down to her utility belt. At first, it hadn't clicked, but once I had focused further, I understood what she was implying. And it was brilliant. Melody then reached down into her belt and retrieved her flare that she had been given just after the briefing. I went in and pulled out mine as well, Terrence and Ashley following soon after. The evening sky was also beginning to turn into dusk. It wouldn't be long before we would have to slip on our night vision goggles. Terrence and I went back to grab a few more detached limbs from the deceased creatures. This time, simply throwing the parts into the water and letting the blood disperse among the surface. Alright now, get ready. I said ordering the three of them to retrieve their flares and prepare for the creature to emerge. I took out my flare once the rest of the team had them ready. All of us standing in a horizontal formation. As I stood there and waited for the serpent to return, the possibility of it having figured out our little trick by this point dawned on me. Throughout this job, I had encountered some extremely intelligent entities, some of which were smarter than humans and this might have been one of them. It's probably trying to wait us out, thinking it might know what we're trying to do. Ashley announced after lowering her flare back into her belt. Anybody got any better ideas? But it felt a bit too early to call it a day because things just got too quiet. And when things got too quiet in a place like this, it never meant anything good. But of course, this silence didn't last long. Because it wasn't long before I felt patterned rumbling beneath my feet. As if something heavy was hitting the ground in a repeated manner. And Terrence was the first to make a significant physical reaction to it. He shifted his stance as if he were about to speak, only to immediately cut himself off and plaster a horrified look in his face as he shifted his attention over to something behind us, something in the trees. We all swung around, laying eyes on the monstrous sight of a near cosmic proportions behind us. Headed straight in our direction was a colossal, supersized version of the hairy tentacle flesh monster that we had encountered when first arriving at the lake. In height alone, this disgusting behemoth reached well over 30 feet, and the width was at least a double that and once again. There were no eyes, no mouth, and no truly defining features. Just a grotesque and hideous mountain of a sloppily laid on fur with nightmarish appendages flailing every which way. It was safe to say that we were stuck between a rock and a hard place. We couldn't retreat into the water and risk ourselves being torn to shreds by the serpent, who was likely waiting. So instead, we had to go slightly off our arbitrarily chosen path and book it out of the area. We wouldn't be able to kill that thing without it killing at least one or two of us in the process, not in this spot. Not to mention the risk of these serpents rising up from the lake and attacking us while our backs were turned. Run. Now. 
I shouted with more urgency than ever before. All of us turned to the left and began to run, all of us with the exception of Ashley who had been closest to the creature. As she started to flee, one of the tentacles shot out and wrapped itself around her arm, beginning to pull her towards the hunk of flesh. But she quickly reached into her utility belt with her free hand, pulling out a large honey knife and then turning to slice the appendage off. She came down on it with unyielding force, letting out a pain to groan as the blade connected, and it sliced right through the tissue of the tentacle severing it and allowing the mucus-colored blood to spew in every direction. I turned, firing off several shots at the creature in order to hold it back long enough for her to further herself from it. It didn't appear too phased by shots to the body, however. It seemed damage to the tentacles themselves were what truly caused it pain. This way, I bellowed as I held my rifle and kept on charging forward, the three other agents at my side as we dodged past trees, leapt over bushes and avoided rocks and ditches. The tentacle creature was rather slow, so I wasn't very worried about it actually catching us. What did worry me, however, was looking to my left and once again, seeing that colossal displacement in the water yet again. Those lines on its back glowing brighter than the previous time. I could only hope that it wasn't producing some sort of ionizing radiation. The serpent kept swimming alongside us, easily keeping pace as we ran from the tentacle creature, and I thought that we were truly trapped with nowhere to go. Until I hatched an idea. All of you, stop. And believe me, they did. Right before looking at me like I was completely insane. And for this idea, maybe I was, to them anyway. We've seen them go at each other, right? Well, let's make that happen again. You want to have these freaks fight? Ashley asked with a dumbfounded expression. Did you forget we used to have a certain freak of our own? I shot back, more urgency in my tone as the tentacle creature covered more ground towards us. We're running out of time and we need to get that data before it gets destroyed. I then turned towards the lake, squinting my eyes as I saw the bright lines of the serpent's back vanish deeper beneath the surface. I know that it was still focused on us, that it still wanted all of us dead, but it wanted to throw us off. I've always thought that cryptids were smarter than they were given credit for. Not that I would ever say something like that in front of Jennifer or my other superiors. This snake's going to circle back and we have to get him up onto the land at the right time. I announced, keeping my eye on the Cthulhu-like monstrosity. And I know just how we're going to do it. Grab your flares. They obliged, but I still ordered them to wait for just the right moment to light them. We were out of options and I needed something, something that would work out just this once. So far, everything that could go wrong in this operation had and I was not intending to keep failing anymore. As the four of us all held our flares in place, I put a hand up, letting the team know to wait for my signal. The serpent had surfaced above the water about a dozen yards away from the bank, the top of his head and subsequently eyes poking out of the lake, as he doubled back and began swimming toward us in a fashion similar to an alligator. As what I began calling Tiny Cthulhu approached us, I had the team take a few steps back, 
wanted to make enough space for these two horrific titans to intersect when the time was right. But only mere seconds passed before the serpent was just a few dozen feet away from the bank and tiny Cthulhu was nearly in range to begin reaching out with his tentacles. Light them up now, I howled, striking my own flare as the team quickly followed suit. And once they were ablaze, we all launched them full force at Tiny Cthulhu, before immediately turning and booking it to get the heck out of the way. Once we had deemed ourselves at a safe distance, the four of us dove into separate areas where the trees and shrubbery were a bit thicker, allowing us to be somewhat hidden while we turned around and watched to make sure that our plan had worked. The flares had struck Tiny Cthulhu, sending his appendages flailing about as the serpent had turned its attention towards him. The serpent then hissed ferociously and lunges nearly half its body out of the water, right towards Tiny Cthulhu, before biting down on one of his tentacles and violently thrashing his head side to side to tear it off. Tiny Cthulhu responds by wrapping several more of its hairy appendages around the serpent and beginning to drag him right out of the water. But then the serpent forcefully pulls back, tearing off the tentacle that he had just previously clamped down, and releasing the severed limb from his jaws out of the ground. As a result, Tiny Cthulhu's blood spills like a can of paint that had just been tipped over, effectively coating a hundred square feet of grass in the disgusting green and brown color. The serpent then drops the limb, all of us watching in anticipation as it rolled along the ground. After which, the giant reptile opened its jaws, hissing and preparing for another attack. But Tiny Cthulhu lunges forward rather quickly, which was surprising considering the lack of speed that it had demonstrated thus far. It then launches two of its tentacles outward, both of which went straight into the serpent's mouth, and judging by the beast's reaction, down its throat. The serpent then begins to thrash and throw itself backwards, but Tiny Cthulhu only dug its tentacles deeper, the bulges of which could be seen in the serpent's stomach. Ah, poor snake. Ashley blurts with a half-serious tone. The serpent then clamps its jaws down, attempting to bite and tear off these two limbs. But Tiny Cthulhu didn't back down. Despite what I think was pain and blood gushing from the bite wounds, it did nothing to stop him. Tiny Cthulhu proceeds to shove another tentacle down the serpent's throat, and then two more after which Tiny Cthulhu then begins to retract them and brutally so. I could practically feel the force at which it pulls back with, as if it planned to tear out every organ in one go. And as if on cue, Tiny Cthulhu does one final quick yank backwards. A wall of the serpent's black, almost tar-like blood comes rushing from its mouth and its lifeless body begins to fall before colliding with the ground. The subsequent boom nearly throws me and the others off our feet, but we all maintained our balance. I signaled to the other three that it was time for us to skedaddle yet again before Tiny Cthulhu turned his attention back on us. In all fairness, we shouldn't have even stayed as long as we did. But the spectacle of two horrific titans fighting to the death had captivated us. Ashley, Melody, and Terrence were careful to stay low and move quick towards me, as Tiny Cthulhu finished off the serpent, using the trees and bushes for cover. I turned and could see the crashed chopper was within sight, seemingly so close yet so far. The sounds of flash, tearing, and ripping was more than enough to cover any noise that we might have made while running. 
I turned and took off, the other three not far behind, all of us lightly but rapidly panting as we hustled along. The subsequent smell of the blood and the noise from the brutal fight that had occurred attracted more of those lizard creatures, an abundance of them emerging from the lake and rushing over to the scene. Just as I had visually finished counting six of them, several more emerged from the water, all of which headed straight for Tiny Cthulhu. That poor guy, I actually kind of rooted for him in the end, but it seemed like his victory would be short-lived. After closing the distance, we were just in mere meters of the crashed helicopter, although having to climb over dead trees and avoid rocks that would have had us on the ground with a broken bone or two didn't speed up the process. But soon enough, we finally emerged to our objective. The chopper was in obvious disarray. The blades in the top were busted and bent up, and the exterior of the front had been impaled by a rather large branch while the tail was completely torn off. The dirt below it had been torn up and displaced every which way. Bits of charred wood and grass spread about. It was a crash site for sure. All right, I called out. We get the data and we go, and no dilly-dallying. Ashley and Terrence, I want you two watching our surroundings while Melody and I go in to extract everything. They obliged, both taking positions on either side of the debris and keeping their rifles trained into the thick tree line, while Melody and I approached the scene closer. Just below the right landing skid was a cardboard box labeled classified, sealed up with a layer of shipping tape around the top, but in the crash it looked like it had been compromised. When I got closer, it appeared that there was supposed to have been a cover. Inside the box, a stack of documents. Documents that I'm sure contained mountains of all sorts of uberly classified and sensitive information. Information that was far above my pay grade to no one comprehend the details of. I quickly scanned the area surrounding us in order to see if I could spot the cover, but I had no such luck. Even in the chaos of everything that had occurred just minutes ago, I forgot to test and see if our communications had been restored. I tried to radio Jennifer only to get no response. Melody, who had picked up a box that was identical to mine, also attempted to see if things had come back online since the serpent had been killed. But she also heard nothing back from Jennifer, so we had no choice but to head back the way that we came start a small fire and signal to the team that we needed out of here. The transport chopper wouldn't be able to land here. The closest possible landing location was where we had originally been dropped off at. I wasn't worried whether or not they would actually get us. This data was far too valuable according to Jennifer, and while she could be pretty ruthless, she wasn't a sociopath to the degree that our previous director was. We gotta head back to the drop-off point, I said, causing Terrence to turn his head to look at me like I was insane. I mean no disrespect, but that's a terrible idea. We don't have a choice, the chopper can't land here. How much more ammo do you have left in your bag? I inquired, because we're gonna need it. Enough for us to definitely get through them, he said pointing towards the bushes behind which the reptile creatures were gruesomely feasting on what was now the body of Tiny Cthulhu. All of them overwhelming the creature with sheer numbers alone. I'm sure the wounds from this battle with the serpent did him no favors either. Well then, I huffed, nodding my head at both Terrence and Ashley. Both of you start loading up on what you can. 
Melody and I will carry the boxes. Terrence, you're going to take the front and kill anything coming towards us. Ashley, the same applies to you, but I want you watching our sex. I want to make sure that Martha didn't die for nothing. Ashley snarls. A sentiment that I can get behind. Terrence replies, gripping his weapon after inserting a new magazine. I held my box, taking a deep breath that I tried and failed to come up with some sort of grand, final motivational speech for the team. Keep close and your ears and eyes open. Also, try not to get eaten. I hope I never have to see this place again, Melody says. We march on, going right back the way that we came. The sounds of the reptiles still snarling and hissing carried through the bushes. We were all sure to stick close together, not leaving any room for us to be grabbed or snatched away from the others. We emerged on the other side, back to where Tiny Cthulhu had killed the serpent, only to find Tiny Cthulhu laying on the ground, covered in his own limbs and blood, as lifeless as a rock with over four dozen of the reptiles ripping and slashing whatever his so-called tissue was. But as soon as one had sniffed the air and caught our scent, he screeched and roared, causing the others to shift their attention our way as well. Terrence and Ashley alone wouldn't be able to kill them all before they overwhelmed us. I had underestimated how many of them had actually materialized from the lake, far more than when we had originally hightailed it to the crashed helicopter. So Melody and I temporarily dropped our boxes containing the data and drew our weapons as the reptilians charged us, all of us firing in unison. Four of them dropped immediately, blood spewing and spattering the area surrounding like liquid from a punctured water balloon. Don't let any blood get in the documents. Jennifer will have all of our heads. I shout, dragging my weapon to the left as I continued spraying bullets, blasting away several of the reptiles as they ran for me. Their glowing red eyes laser-focused on us in the most unsettling way possible. But it wasn't long before I had to dive into Terrence's bag and grab another magazine to reload, putting the pressure on the other three members of my team to keep up the defense as I did so. But I could feel them coming down on us like a ton of bricks, and there was a moment, as I had my hand on that magazine, that I thought we wouldn't make it out of this thing alive. Once I started reloading, however, I thought I could somewhat rest easy. But as soon as I had finished putting the new magazine in, Terrence turned and shouted at me with a loud yet desperate projection. Look out! And then all I felt was the hard earth shattering blow to my body. Like getting hit by a minivan going just under 10 miles an hour. I mean, sure, there's worse, but that doesn't make it any better. After the initial blow was nothing but silent darkness for it only felt like seconds. But being unconscious doesn't exactly give you the best comprehension of time. I was thinking that I wouldn't have ever opened my eyes again to tell you the truth. But when I awoke, I awoke to bright, blinding white light. Causing me to hold my arm out in front of my eyes to give them a bit of relief from the sudden burst of brightness. I felt sore and was definitely in pain as I rolled over on what I assumed to be one of our medical wing beds, but I had all my limbs and they all worked, and there was no major or life-threatening wounds from what I could tell, so I had been allowed to carry on. I looked around in the room only to find myself completely alone in the cold, clinical and sterile white emptiness of the medical wing. 
but it's not like this was a place to go to if you were looking for warmth. I sat up in the bed, groaning a bit as I looked forward and saw the knob to the entrance door beginning to turn, only for it to swing open and reveal four familiar faces on the other side. Melody, Terrence, Dr. Garth, and of course, Director Jennifer, all of which had faces that expressed a different emotion. Terrence looked proud but relieved. Melody had seemed worried. Dr. Garth seemed strangely interested, and Jennifer looked rather upset, specifically at me. Where's Ashley? I probed, looking beyond the four of them as they entered. She laid down her life, led some of those things away while I carried you back to the drop-off point. Terrence replied, now looking slightly towards the floor. I tried to convince her to stay close and that we would figure something out, but she didn't listen. Said that she would be more than fine joining Martha if it meant that she didn't have to watch anyone else die. I paused, having no idea what to say at first. I mainly just looked at the floor, trying to choose my next word somewhat carefully. And did you see those things actually kill her? Or is that what she told you to believe? I grilled, pointing to Jennifer with a bit of anger in my delivery. Turns out that I did not in fact choose my words carefully. Watch it, she snarled back. You're already on thin ice yourself. We were only able to get one of those boxes of data back here. My superiors are about to have my head on a platter because of it. In my head, I had already cooked up a rebuttal about how next time, if she wanted the mission done better, then she should have given me more agents and weapons to work with. But I was better off not testing my luck. And besides, from what I heard, mission budgets were getting a bit more tight as of late. I'm sure the money spent on that high-tech and basically tank of a van didn't help. For now, Ashley is marked as KIA in her file. I don't care if you all want to mourn her and Martha so long as it doesn't get in the way of our operations, she pronounced. And although as cold and corporate as that statement may sound, I could tell she genuinely didn't care as little as she pretended to. But working here, especially in a position of leadership, you have to be cold and calculating whether you actually are or not, although it makes it easier if you are. Nonetheless, with a few more groans here and there, I stood up to thank both Terrence and Melody for saving my life and carrying me to safety, as well as letting them know that I would surely owe them big time for it, and I wasn't sure if a pizza party would cut it. But that wasn't the end of it, because Jennifer pulled me aside and told me to follow her alone and sit down in her office. I was honestly expecting to get demoted, maybe even terminated, but instead, Jennifer sighed took a seat behind her desk and pulled out a black binder labeled File 34C. I leaned forward a bit despite it slightly hurting my sides to do so, but the last thing that I wanted to do was slouch and risk upsetting her anymore. Already giving me something new, huh? I inquired. Well, sort of. There's nothing concrete yet, but I'm thinking that if we're able to make some progress with this particular target, the ones upstairs might not come down to me as hard for messing this operation up. It's been one that we've been trying to take down for quite a while now. I'm sure you may recognize them, considering your decent amount of seniority here. She then opens up the binder and retrieves a small folder from within, 
before looking over at me before placing it on the desk between us and opening it up. After which, she then turns it 180 degrees before sliding it over to me and allowing me to see the contents. What appeared in front of me was a picture, a photograph of what looked to be some dark, dank basement of a building, with all sorts of rusted pipes and dusty shelves on both the walls and ceiling. What's this supposed to be? I inquired, taking my eyes off the photograph for just a moment. Look closer, she replied, a bit of patience returning to her voice as she pointed at where these subjects supposedly was. I looked back down, squinting at the picture and leaning in a little closer. Further down the corridor of where this picture was taken, I made out two different pairs of red glowing dots. And how did I know they were separate pairs? Well, I could make out figures that they were attached to. Human-like figures. Humans that were obviously no longer human. Or perhaps never were, who knows. But all I know to me is that it looked like shadow people. Legitimate shadow people. I'm guessing you won't tell me what happened to the guy who took this, will you? Jennifer ignores the rhetorical question. Instead, she just releases a big sigh before uttering her own question. What do you know about the nocturnals? I heard an audio recording of hell, and now I'm hallucinating about it. Written by 10-Minute Horror. It was the middle of the night when I heard it. I had been finalizing a project on Pro Tools when an email came in from my friend Greg. The subject line was, let me know what you think. There was nothing in the body of the email, but there was an attachment. A dot wave audio file, less than a megabyte in size, and it displayed a 30 second runtime. I sent back an email asking what it was. He responded quickly saying that's what he needed me to find out. I'm not surprised Greg had emailed me about it. I'm a sound engineer and I do post work for documentaries and some low-level TV shows. I mix, design, and clean up audio. I do foley and score. I'm good at everything, but not great at any of them. But I also know tour networking and frequented the deep web using multiple VPNs and a customized sound room slash a Faraday cage that I had built myself. In the second email, Greg told me that he had been sent the file from a Reddit link which was now gone. The subs were taken down and the spark around it quickly went out. But the file came back online and started moving through Telegram and Discord. More and more people listened to it, debating and theorizing what it was. One person managed to track the file back to the dark web, but from there, it was impossible to trace to an origin. All it had was a name. Inferno.wave I ran the attachment through two full scans of antivirus software that I had modified myself. It came up clean on both. So I downloaded it and opened a visualizer of the sound waves. They were all peaking consistently. I lowered the volume so I wouldn't blow my eardrums and I pressed play. The sounds started immediately, 
and assault on every sensor in my ear, high, low, and medium pitches. It was producing multiple shepherd's tones, including in reverse, giving a dizzy and constantly swelling and decaying effect. The inside of my head felt like it was boiling, like a fever. I was unable to fully latch on to anything after the first few seconds. It was too all-consuming, like a bad mushroom trip in a room with no lights on. The darkness just guides you and if you resist, it gets worse. It felt like it was playing for minutes, hours even, and then it finally ended. I threw my headphones off. I was overwhelmed with emotions and I burst into tears. I couldn't explain why. I didn't remember a single thing that I heard, like it was all immediately erased from my memory. But I felt like I was changed forever. When I calmed down, I went out back for a smoke and brought a bottle of bourbon to chase it. I felt dizzy and I couldn't stand up straight. I leaned against the house and realized the sound had affected my entire ear. It wasn't just my hearing. It was also my equilibrium that was torched. My sense of balance was gone and vertigo was taking over. I had a second smoke and felt my senses and balance coming back. I could hear the rustling of the forest behind my house. Dogs barking somewhere on the property next to mine. The cigarette amber burning my own heavy breathing. I went back inside and quickly felt like a foreigner in my own house. And as I entered my office, I felt like I wasn't the only one in there. I hit the power bar beside the door and my entire system shut off. When it did and the room was plunged into darkness, I saw the silhouette of something appear against the window on the inside of the glass in the room. I scrambled to turn the overhead light on, but the silhouette was gone. I didn't get a good look at it, but it looked like it had two spikes protruding from its forehead. I got my shotgun and slept with my bedroom door locked that night, but neither of those could protect me from what was going on in my head. The nightmares came before I even was asleep. They were horrifying and acted as all dreams do. Starting without a point of origin, but continuously moving in a forward momentum. They all ended with me in a terrifying version of down below. I was drowning in lakes of boiling water as fire streaked down at me like sheets of rain. There was an unbearable heat from every direction. I crawled out of the lake onto a moving but solid layer of molten lava. My skin melted and healed at the same time. My eyes burned and mended simultaneously. The pain was excruciating and never-ending, and felt like a burn that scarred the entire inside of my body forever. I woke up in bed, covered in sweat and fevering. It was still early, just before dawn, but I wasn't going back to sleep, even though I was exhausted. I took a cold shower and watched steam come off my body, as the cool water reacted with my hot skin. I checked my phone and saw three missed calls and a voicemail from Greg. It was urgent and panicking. Greg was seeing things, things he shouldn't see outside of sleep. But they were in his house, his room, 
following him, chasing him, attacking him. They were flashes of beings from some kind of horrible world. Greg was touched by something he described as a demon made out of dark red mist. The touch had burned Greg's arm badly. When he woke up, his arm was still burned and horribly infected. He could barely move at it and seemed to be moving its way up his shoulder. Greg warned me not to let them touch me. Them. Greg was convinced that it was because of the audio recording. He begged me, pleaded with me to listen to the file again. To try to decipher it. To figure out where it came from. Maybe search for a remedy. The message had cut off halfway through one of his cries. I tried to call him back, but there wasn't an answer. I left a message and I told him to call me. I texted him the same thing. After that, I didn't know what to do. Everything had felt off. I decided to make some coffee and try to divert myself from what was going on. I needed some crisp ambience from the deep woods out back for a new project that I was working on. It would be simple and distracting enough. I rolled a joint to ease my nerves and to smoke on the walk. I grabbed my mic, mixer, and headphones, and I went out back. Now I have a good chunk of property in my backyard. There is some old trucks and cars, leftovers from distant relatives of the past. The realty is mostly woods and swampland, but has a few paths and trails that cut through it for four-wheeling and snowmobiling. There was a clearing just off the trails that I wanted to get a recording of. The wind came in through the trees in a strange way some mornings and I'd been trying to capture it right for a few months now. I made it there and was recording for about five minutes before everything silenced out. I snapped my fingers near the mic and heard it clearly, but the wind had disappeared. No leaves rustling, animals in movement or birds chirping. It was like I was in an anechoic chamber. No direct or reflective sounds, just pure isolation. I turned up the volume levels on my mixer, but the woods had gone still. And then a snap. Somewhere off in the forest, a twig broke. And another. But this time in the other direction. And then two, three, four, right after each other. Something was walking, shambling forward. I did full 360 degree turns. But there was nothing and no one out there aside from the trees. The cracks and snaps got louder, closer, like there were dozens of feeder claws scrambling along the ground towards me. I crouched in fear, covering my head and face and shutting my eyes as a heavy wave of wind and heat knocked against me. I kept my feet and held still, bracing for more. I waited for the sounds or breeze or heat or anything more to come at me, but they didn't come. I stood back up, opening my eyes to see the forest was dark. It had just been this morning, but somehow it was now night. The day had disappeared. I started making my way back to the path to my house, feeling more and more surrounded by unseen predators. A twig snapped somewhere behind me and I spun to check. Deep in the woods, something was glowing, moving slowly a meter off the ground. It flickered a deep red and looked like a marshmallow on fire, floating through the woods. It was coming towards me. I froze up. A deep pit in my stomach formed and I was brought back to childhood. 
to the one time that my parents had took us camping. As a kid, I had burnt my sister's face with a marshmallow that I had let catch fire. Now it wasn't intentional, obviously. Just goofing around and it turned into a bad accident. But it left a nasty scar on her cheek that I still don't think she'll ever forgive me for. The little ball of fire traveling forward through the trees looked exactly like that flaming marshmallow. I picked up my pace, finding the path and making my way back to my house. I checked over my shoulder and saw the ball of fire was still following me. My run turned to a sprint. I didn't look over my shoulder to slow down until I was through my back door and it was slammed shut. As I caught my breath inside, I saw the ball of fire flow past the window and out of sight. I checked my phone and saw more missed calls from Greg and voicemails. I listened to the first one but I had to turn it off. The whole recording was Greg crying in pain and fear, just begging for help. I went back upstairs to my office. Whatever we had listened to had affected Greg in a deep, psychological and hallucinatory ways. And it was starting to do the same to me. I turned the power bar back on and lit up my system and my monitors. I sat down and drank more bourbon, though I didn't think anything could take this edge off. I put my headphones on and I pressed play on the file. I was immediately thrown back to a familiar and horrified state. The sounds refound their groove in my ears again, and my muscles tensed and then shut down. This time, I was remembering everything. Over the years, my ears had become so attuned to nuance, I was able to decipher everything that I was hearing from the file. There were horrific cries coming from fire lashing and water boiling and bubbling. I could hear storms of violent nuclear thunderclaps that shot through my head like electroconvulsive therapy. Fiery rain that hit the lava hardened ground like tiny meteors. Flames whipping against bare skin. Pain and suffering. There was something like a huge, powerful generator fueling it all that sounded like it was all very nearly about to explode. A leviathan of base and sub-base vibrations, shaking so strongly they were creating some kind of war drum effect. And underneath, there was a rhythm. Some strange harmony under the chaos, like chanting or a prayer. And then it ended and the world was thrown into silence and stillness. The room felt darker and my body felt like a lead statue about to topple. I sat quietly for several minutes before I felt the world shift back on balance, and my mind wandered right back to where it was. I thought about the sounds, the screams in particular. I had heard all kinds before. In one documentary, I worked on which followed the horrible events that happened in Rwanda. I had heard my first real death screams. There had been new audio recordings out of some of the towns that had been ravaged by the armed militia, and they were horrific. It wasn't just that you knew the screams were real. The sounds hit differently entirely. They landed somewhere deep and dark in your heart. I heard once that you could tell fake screams from real ones because these souls were trapped in the sounds of the real one, and they reached out and held you with an icy grip when you listened. This was something like that, but worse. It felt like I was suffering with the screamers. 
My whole body had heated and my muscles were tensing from pressures on different parts of me like the air in the room was flexing. I stared at the file, sitting there on my desktop between my projects and my music. Inferno.wave. My phone buzzed. I checked the screen, hoping for Greg, but it was his sister Carly and she was crying. The family wasn't sure how it happened or why, but Greg was dead. Somehow Greg had caught fire in his room. He ran outside and he had jumped into the family pool. But he kept burning. It was like the water wasn't touching him. Greg had climbed out of the pool giving up and he died in the backyard. His body burned to a crisp. And the immediate thought was that it was self-inflicted, but there was no sign of fuel or accelerant used. In fact, they couldn't tell how such a blazing hot fire could have erupted on his body without leaving a trail out of the house or burning a blade of grass in the field that he had collapsed in. Carly asked if I had talked to him recently, if I had noticed anything strange about him, if he had mentioned having any of these thoughts. I was in shock, but managed to offer my love and prayers, while claiming that he had seemed fine to me, which was true. Outside of the last day or so, he was his normal goofy self. The only thing that had changed was the audio file that he had listened to. I told her that I would stop by the house later to see them, and I thanked her for calling me. When I hung up, it all became real. I had to figure out what that file was and where it came from. I started up a program that I had created that used different audio translation filters to help with identifying languages and some of the projects that I worked on. The programs measured for both pronunciation, sound, and grammatical shape and origin, discerning the language of Genesis. I was getting back some strange results. At first, it wasn't identifying anything at all. I had to restart the program twice. And then it began partially recognizing elements of words in Greek, Aramaic, Demotic, Heretic, and Coptic. I separated the dialects, whatever they were, from everything else. The words came out in a strange, lengthy grouping. They sounded like a prayer but worked in a perfect loop, ending on these same notes as they began, which was similar to the shepherd's tone. I put the phrases through a search engine. I only received one result which led to some back-channel website that explored ancient, dead languages. The result gave me chills, claiming similarities to and including the divine language. I sent an email to the site moderator who was a professor in philology and linguistics with the prayer translated into a readable series of words, asking for his immediate help. As I waited for a response, I checked the telegram chat rooms that Greg had mentioned, and they gave me more chills. Everyone posting had been complaining about the same things that Greg had experienced. Some of them were more personal. The more frightening stories described watching their friend or family member or coworker go up in flames two days after listening to the audio file. They would begin by coughing up smoke, and then their skin turned dark like it was burning. Their insides would begin to melt, and then they would spontaneously combust wherever they were. I closed the chat rooms and decided to go out for a smoke. I wasn't going through the woods though, not after last time. I sat on the back edge of the yard and looked out into the woods. 
I looked at a few of the old cars in the back rusting over. I thought about how I used to play in them. I smoked my first cigarette in one of them. First beer, first girl that I made out with. They held a lot of memories. Sitting there trying to break down what was happening, all I could come up with was that some sound frequency project or experiment or weapon Headley Daughter was unleashed and was spreading through various social media channels. I had read about shady government programs focusing on sound waves and how they alter brain waves to suit various needs. Some needs were more malevolent than others, so this idea didn't seem far-fetched. But then, there were the hallucinations. In the extreme heat, I kept feeling like a fever blanket pulsing over me in waves. All of this was deeper than some Manchurian candidate trick. I knew there was one more possibility, however insane it seemed to even think, that the file was somehow, some way, an audio recording of down below. The idea that there was a place like this, let alone that someone had been there and recorded the sounds and admitted and put it online, it was insane to me. But here I was. The ambience around me drained out and the burning of my cigarette was amplified. I focused on it, watching it burn. All of a sudden, there was smoke all around me. I tried to get up, but I was no longer on the back steps. I was in the driver's seat of the rusted jeep out back. I was seat belted in. Smoke was funneling through the old truck from the back seats as a deep red was glowing out from it. Something was in the back, a dark silhouette amongst the smoke. I struggled against the seatbelt, but it burned into my hands like it was made of fire. The sounds... The horrifying screams from the depths of whatever place was on that file screeched out from the back seat. And then Greg's voice came from them. I'm waiting for you, Johnny. I'm keeping your seat warm. I yanked myself forward and shot up in bed. The jeep in the backyard were gone. I was in my room now, halfway under the covers, drenched in sweat. I had been sleeping. Another nightmare had shook me. I got up, the loss of balance was back like the world had shifted slightly and I hadn't adjusted. I could see into the hallway which was pulsing with a new, deep red glow before plunging into darkness. That same levitating ball of fire, the size of a marshmallow, floating past my doorway moving towards the stairs down. I walked out into the hallway and the red pulse continued to glow off and on. The fist-sized flaming ball was at the end of the hallway. It moved down the stairs, disappearing on the first floor. I followed the ball down, putting my hand on the walls to balance myself, but found that the walls and the railings were perspiring. Everything was beating with sweat. The air on the first floor was thick with humidity as I walked through it. It felt like gravity was now pushing and pulling horizontally to the sides instead of vertically down. In the main entrance, I could see into the kitchen, which opened up to dual sliding back doors made of glass. They looked out onto the deck, which had a ten-foot drop down to the ground below. A figure was standing on the deck, looking down into the backyard. The figure turned back and smiled. It was me. And then it stepped over the edge of the terrace and fell. I nervously walked through the kitchen and out onto the deck. I peeped over the edge. Heat burned the skin of my face. My eyebrows curled. My mouth went dry. 
in the pits of below stared up at me, daring me to look away. Pain, screaming and suffering wailed from tiny bodies that looked like ants far below. But they were all people, millions of them. A hand pressed into my back and I felt myself go over the edge of the deck. I turned back to see who had pushed me, and I saw myself there, smiling. I kept hoping this was a dream, that I would wake up during the fall down below. But I didn't. I kept falling and the heat got hotter. I hit the ground like a brick. I felt the hardened, molten lava burn through my skin and pulverized the bones of my body as I landed. I couldn't move. I was a mushy liquid that was slowly reforming into a solid figure. I could see blurry shapes rushing towards me, horrific sounds screeching from them. And then I woke up. Or rather, I came to and fell forward out of my chair. I was still sitting in the backyard having my cigarette. I hadn't gone to the jeep or woken up in bed or fallen off the edge. I was still here and the cigarette that I had started was just burning into the filter. I was covered in sweat. My clothes were stuck to me and I felt like I was on fire. I rushed inside and got in the shower, running freezing water over me until my temperature started to drop. And then I started to cough up smoke. I had no idea how much time had passed since I had listened to the track and realized that it could have been two days already. I rushed back to my office and found an email response from the professor who moderated the website. Unfortunately, he said he couldn't help a ton, as it was mostly unknown knowledge. But he would tell me what he knew, and started with what the phrase structure was. It was a prayer referred to as a defied chant. That is, a prayer structured like a palindrome so it could be chanted backwards as well as forwards and elicit the same message. It was used to honor or worship a deity with a supreme regard. The use of a palindrome itself could be interpreted in different ways, but the main explanation for it, the spiritual one, was that a palindrome was a message from angels who were watching over you. Therefore, a palindrome could be used to call angels forth for protection. But this defied chant had one portion in the middle that wasn't a part of the palindrome, and it didn't appear to be for protection. The word Halil was detected amongst the chants. The word translated to you-know-what in Hebrew. Halil didn't work the same backwards as forwards, which made the defied chant into something else. I began coughing up huge puffs of dark smoke and my insides felt like they were burning up. I managed to focus back on my monitor and read the final part of the email. The professor offered a simple suggestion to play the audio recording backward. Everything except for the one word, Halil would play the same, but maybe that word would change the effect. It seemed too obvious, so obvious in fact that it might actually work. I dragged and dropped the file into a timeline just to check. I reversed its flow and placed my headphones on nervously, and I hit play. The sound started in reverse and I began to seizure immediately. 
My sight went blurry as hallucinations filled my vision and then went black. I felt like I was floating in space, no air to breathe or surfaces to touch. I didn't feel like I was a person. I felt like a spirit, in essence, floating through infinity. And then a hole opened up and a bright white light poured into the darkness. From the light, I saw bodies toppling over, falling into the darkness below them. The bodies were human-like, but some of them had wings which were burning away as they fell. The bodies dropped from the sky like a blazing red meteor shower. As they hurled downward, their brightness lit up the ground below them. I saw barren, scorched rock and desert. Volcanoes erupting and mountains shaking. The bodies fell into large, slithering rivers of boiling water and fire. They screamed upwards towards the sky. The landscape was like a moving canvas, a biblical oil painting through the fall from heaven. The fall of those. The disgraced angels tumbling down through ash and cinder cloud. From the hole in the sky they would all be thrown from, I saw a vision of the great angels Michael and Abdiel. They were casting out the final disgraced usurper from the midst. Lucifer, at once the brightest light in heaven, was now the great fallen angel, and he was being reborn as the devil to rebuild his army in his new fallen kingdom. The light from above had closed and the evils and atrocities of the fallen could only be seen by the red glow of the exploding volcanoes. A horrible explosion of sound shook through the scape, and I felt my essence implode from its power. And then I was back, sitting in front of my monitor. I had wet myself and a pool of sweat had covered the floor around me. My eyes were bloodshot and the tiny hairs in my nose had been singed away. All I could smell was them burning. Hours had passed by, but I was alive. I took another shower and cleaning myself and cooling down the slight fever I still had. I started to feel better. I wasn't sure if it was in the clear and I was nervous to delete the file. So I put it into a password protected folder on an external hard drive and I locked it in a small Faraday cage that I had built. I went back online and searched Telegram and Discord. The chat rooms had gone quiet. The conversations were there even if the people who had them weren't. And the file had vanished. It wasn't circulating anywhere anymore. Inferno.wave was gone. All that was left were the ashes of people's lives and bodies that had been torched from listening to it. I performed a lengthy online reverse search for any sign of the file, but nothing came up. It completely had disappeared online and it hasn't reappeared. Since then, I've been trying to get my crap together. Friendships, relationships, work, health, exercise, all of it. Because the biggest lesson that I took away from this whole existential nightmare was that the place down below, it's real, and I never want to go there. The horrifying final message of an astronaut sent to explore another universe, written by The Dark Void 79. 
the test had gone horribly wrong. It was supposed to be a quick and simple test. Activate the Philadelphia Drive, dematerialize the spacecraft and ourselves from our universe, materialize at the target universe, gather some data, and then return to our original one. NASA had reassured us that this would not take more than 10 minutes to do this, start to finish. This was the first test after all, so they didn't want to stay in another universe longer than necessary. So our goal in this test was to get as much data as possible from the target universe and return immediately, thus paving the way for future missions. I have to admit, I was very excited at first. I was already happy to be accepted into the program, but to be a part of the first mission to cross into another universe made me ecstatic. The idea of being one of the first humans to cross universes thrilled me, and I felt so proud to have been chosen. Years of learning about the Philadelphia Drive and training for the possible rigors of interuniversal travel had finally led to that moment where I and my crewmates would make our marks in history. If everything goes as planned, we would return back as heroes. However, things didn't go as planned. Everything was normal at first. In fact, it felt exactly like the training and practice runs which we had rehearsed hundreds of times. As the pilot of the spacecraft, my job was to make sure the vessel and all its systems were working and fully functional, going through the checklist and communicating with mission control on Earth. I checked and double-checked all systems until me and the flight controllers on the planet were satisfied with the data that we were receiving. I didn't have much of a role in the operation of the Philadelphia Drive itself, as that was regulated to the mission commander, the chief engineer, and the senior researcher on board. However, I and the rest of the crew had basic knowledge on how it works, as well as its basic maintenance. We are being sent into another universe and so is NASA, and its habit of having backups and backups for the backups ensured that every member of the crew had to know how to operate and repair the device in case of emergency. Once all system inspections were conducted and completed by all stations, and as the final minutes before the driver's activation had ticked by, mission control conducted one last check to see if everyone was ready for the mission. Listening to the comms network, I smiled in satisfaction as each flight controller gave a hearty approval for the mission to proceed. Fido, go. Guidance, go. Capcom, go. Surgeon, go. Network, go. Drive, go. On and on they went, going through each station, until fellow astronaut and current Capcom, Will Hardy, said the sweet words that we had all been waiting for. Heart of gold, this is Houston. You are go for Philadelphia Drive activation. Roger that, Houston. Mission Commander Larry Johnson replied, before giving the crew a thumbs up with his gloved hands. Smiling at this, I then looked at the mission clock and saw that there was only a minute left before the drive was activated. Making sure that my seat straps were tight and secure, I then looked at my control panels and made sure that the ship's systems were still good. At the time, I don't remember feeling scared. Excited, yes. Scared, no. 
Maybe this was because NASA had sent out an unmanned spacecraft to the same target universe and had managed to return said spacecraft unharmed. And data collected from those missions had concluded that travel to another universe was safe for humans. And I think that was enough to assure me that everything was going to be okay. And to me, at least at the time, the safe return of the unmanned spacecraft and the positive data it gave was enough to convince me that interuniversal travel was safe. At the same time, I guess I was too drowned in excitement to feel scared. Like I said, first humans to cross to another dimension. The target universe that we would be going to and the one which the unmanned spacecraft had visited was one that was very similar to our current one. It had Earth, the Moon, and the rest of our solar system, just like the one that we have now. Everything in that universe was like ours. Well, except for the fact that Earth had no humans, at least according to the previous mission. Scans from the unmanned spacecraft had revealed that aside from plant life and some animals, the planet was devoid of intelligent life. Because of that, it made that universe the perfect test bed for future missions, since NASA didn't want to make contact with humanity in another universe. At least not yet, that is. As the last seconds counted down, and as the Philadelphia Drive began powering up and shaking the spacecraft, I gave one last glance towards the moon that we currently orbited, and knew that I would soon be seeing a different moon from a different universe. Alright everybody, get ready. Commander Johnson called out, as I returned my gaze towards my control panel. Activating drive in 3, 2, 1... Flashes of light of every color shone through our cockpit window as I felt my whole body shake from the vibrations the spacecraft was making. Around 50 meters behind me through various halls and compartments, the Philadelphia Drive was doing its job in transporting us from our universe to our target one. I felt no pain as this happened and the shaking was actually very mild. In fact, Launches from ground to space actually felt more violent than what I was experiencing as we jumped from one universe to another. However, during this process, something wrong had happened. An alarm suddenly screeched, which was followed by another and another. Chief Engineer Harold McKnight was the first one to report. My commander, one of the drive's cooling systems has malfunctioned. He said as I scanned my control panel to see that smoke had been detected in the compartment where the drive was stored. Checking the monitor that showed a live video feed of the compartment, I saw that the important drive was the cause of the smoke, as a chunk of it had seemed to be missing and torn apart. However, before I could report this, senior researcher Diane Lincoln spoke up. The drive is overheated and a portion of it is blown up, Commander. She said in a calm voice, as if there was no danger to the news that she had just told us. This system is now undergoing an automatic shutdown and is powering down. I suggest that everybody get ready, because we're about to materialize. Where? Commander Johnson asked, as he activated the extinguishers after I finally managed to report to him about the smoke detected in the driver's compartment. Before Diane could reply, we were then violently thrown forward, as the bright, colorful lights shining from our cockpit suddenly disappeared. Thanks to our straps, we were held secure to our seats. 
However, a sudden and painful headache has struck me immediately, as I groaned from the sudden pain that it caused. It felt so bad that I wanted to open my helmet and pressed my hand firmly against my forehead. It took every strength of willpower within me to resist this urge, as I knew that it was not wise to open a helmet without first checking if the compartment was completely pressurized, since there was no telling if the spacecraft took any structural damage from the jump. However, the pain was hard to ignore and it momentarily paralyzed me from doing my duty. To add to my pain, I also felt extremely dizzy, as I felt the urge to vomit. It was terrible and I wondered what could have caused this sudden sensation. Managing to turn my head and gaze towards Commander Johnson, I was surprised to see that a pained expression was also plastered on his face. Willing myself to look towards my back, I saw that Harold and Diane were also in pain. I found this strange, as headaches and nausea were not supposed to be felt after a jump. At least that's what NASA had told us. So either this was a side effect that we were just not discovering, or there was something else to it. The pain somehow subsided long enough for us to regain some composure and check up on one another. Once this was done, Commander Johnson questioned Diane on where we were. I don't know, Commander, Diane finally said, a reply none of us expected. I had hoped that you would say that we had materialized back in our universe or maybe even in the target one, but to not know where we ended up, it brought a chill down my spine. It seems like the explosion somehow disrupted the jump and knocked the drive off course, she reported, as she worked her computer to check for our location. We're now in a new universe that isn't in NASA's records. Oh god, this place is completely devoid of stars. This caught my attention as I looked out of the cockpit window for the first time since we got here. What Diane said was true. The universe outside was really without stars. Looking out with awe and fear, I found myself staring at nothing but an empty canvas of black. It felt terrifying staring at it. Space was supposed to be filled with the bright glow of celestial bodies. It was never empty. So to see it like this, so dark and so barren, it made me feel so small and isolated. I never knew such a simple void could be so terrifying, yet it was. Pushing my head closer towards the window, my eyes soon darted around to try and look for anything in the darkness, but there was nothing. It was empty. It seemed like there was nothing in this universe but us. Eventually, I managed to pull myself out of the trance of staring at the empty void and return my attention towards my crewmates. I don't like this place, Commander Johnson finally said, a hint of fear and frustration in his voice. Alright, what is the extent of the drive's damage? Can it be repaired? I'll have to check it out first before I can answer that, Commander. Diane said as she began unbuckling her straps and prepared to go check on the drive. She had been one of the scientists who had helped develop the drive itself, so there was no one else on board who knew it better than her. Alright, take Harold with you and report to me as soon as possible. Roger that, Commander, Harold said as he began unbuckling his own straps. 
However, by that point, Diane was already floating around out of the cockpit and making her way through the hall that led towards the drive's compartment. I'd better call on the rest of the crew to see if anyone was hurt by what happened, Commander Johnson said, as Harold left the room. The crew at the lower deck had been quiet since the drive's activation, and Commander Johnson was starting to get worried for them. Go check on the spacecraft and see if we took any other damage from the explosion. Checking the spacecraft, I was relieved to see that no other damage seemed to have occurred. Inspecting the drive's compartment, I reported that there was no structural damage or leaks in the room, and that there was no more smoke detected in it either. However, Commander Johnson seemed too busy and distracted to acknowledge my report. Looking towards him, I watched as he called on the rest of the crew through the local comms network, but there was no reply. Despite constant calls for them to report in, the four crew members kept quiet. Finding this odd, my first instinct was to check the camera that gave us a look of their compartment. However, instead of the usual sight of four suited astronauts in their seats, I instead saw nothing but a black smudge. It seemed like something was smeared on the lens, but I wasn't exactly sure what it was. Getting increasingly worried about the safety of his crew members on the lower deck, Commander Johnson ultimately decided to personally go down to see if they were alright, ordering me to stay put and monitor the spacecraft systems. He then unstrapped himself and floated out of the compartment, and with that I was left all alone, with my headache slowly coming back again. Knowing that the compartment was now safe and airtight, I momentarily lifted my visor so I could rub the aching spot on my forehead, but it was no use and it gave me no relief. The pain was still there and it seemed to get worse by the second. Wanting to distract myself from the pain, I decided to look out the cockpit window in hopes of making my mind focus on something other than the pain. However, I would soon regret this decision as I saw something that terrified me more than I was earlier. I had expected to see the empty void once more, but this time there was something floating in space. It was a head, but it wasn't just a head, it was my head. I backed up on my seat as I saw this as I felt fear run through me. Staring at it with frightened eyes, I found myself looking directly at my own eyes, which stared back at me with a cold and soulless gaze. I couldn't believe it and I had to blink my eyes a couple of times to make sure what I was seeing was real. Right in front of me floating in the cold vacuum of the void was my head. It looked so alike to me, yet at the same time I could tell that there was no life in it. It was terrifying seeing that, but I couldn't help but keep my eyes fixed on it. Both curiosity and fear were surging through me as I wondered how a copy of my head ended up out there. What had created it? How was a copy of my head made so quickly during the short time that we had been here? What was it made of? So many questions circled my mind as I felt the headache hit me once more. Feeling the powerful wave of pain surge again, I instinctively pushed my hand to my forehead to meet the oncoming rush. However, instead of touching my forehead, I was shocked to feel nothing but air. Eventually, my hand ended up touching the inner back part of my helmet before I suddenly withdrew my hand in fright. 
For a moment I was in disbelief, but then I brought my hand back into my helmet and felt nothing. I pulled back my hand before putting it in again, and then did it again and again and again, as I felt my stomach drop in horror. As I stopped inserting my hand into my helmet, I slowly looked out the window and once more, gazed outside to see that the head was still there, floating freely while its cold stare was still directed at me. I began to fear that the head floating out there may not just have been a copy of my head, but instead my actual one. That shouldn't be possible. In fact, it made no sense. Yet I couldn't explain what had just happened. Somehow the universe had done something that wouldn't have been possible on our own. My mind was clouded with confusion and fear at that moment, as I sat there staring. I can't remember how long I stared at my own floating head, but eventually I snapped out of the trance when I heard Diane call out in the local intercom. The commander, this is Diane, she began. The damage to the drive doesn't seem too bad. It just needs a simple replacement of some parts. I already have Harold and getting the spares as we speak. There was a pause as Diane waited for a reply from Commander Johnson, but the comms remained silent. Commander, Diane called out again, but once more there wasn't a reply. At this point, I was starting to worry for the commander. I hadn't heard from him since he went down to check on the crew, and there was no way for me to check on him from the cockpit. Fearing for his safety and the safety of the crew on the lower deck, I decided to check on them and see what was going on there. After informing Diane that the commander had gone down to check on the lower deck crew, and that I hadn't had communication with him since he left, I then told her that I would go down there also and see what the situation was. I deliberately neglected to inform her what I saw outside the ship and what had occurred to me, since I didn't want to distract her from the meticulous task of repairing the crucial drive. I wanted her to focus on her task so we could get out of this universe as soon as possible. And besides, since I was going down, I would eventually see the commander and the chief medical officer, who would probably be better suited to help me. With that in mind, I pulled down my visor, unstrapped myself from my seat, and left the cockpit without looking back at the head that I knew was still staring at me. Making my way through the spacecraft, I went through the hall and pushed myself down the tube that led to the lower deck. However, upon reaching the hall that led towards the crew compartment there, I immediately knew that something bad had occurred. The hall was dark, far darker than it should have been if the lighting was turned on. Looking around, I noticed that the wall panels were covered in something strange. Deciding to move closer towards it, I observed that it was some sort of skin coating it. Repulsed by this, I quickly drew back, but ended up pushing myself too far and hitting the panels behind me. A sticky substance soon stuck to the rear of my suit, and I turned around to see that the fleshy skin that covered that panel was leaking the thick liquid from pores that dotted its surface. Trying my best to ignore the creepy looking surface, I decided to stay strong and continue on towards the crew compartment. However, as I floated towards its hatch, I noticed that the skin-like material seemed to cover all the panels of the hallway. Luckily, the hatch itself didn't seem to be covered in it, so I was easily able to pull it open to peer inside the compartment. What I saw was not what I had expected. 
Like the hall, the compartment's wall panels were covered by the fleshy skin. However, it was much more disgusting, as the flesh here was not completely covered in skin. Some parts had muscle exposed. In fact, the skin on some portions seemed to be floating next to it, as if peeled and with only a small portion left, connected with the muscle. It was a horrifying sight, but that was not the main thing that caught my attention. Flattened on the panels, there were four faces, eyes looking and staring at me. Staring at one of them, the face gave me a teary-eyed look, as its mouth tried to move in an attempt to speak, but no words came out. Instead, it just continued its mouth movements as it opened and closed with a pained look plastered on its flat face. Soon, the other three faces did the same, as they all looked at me with desperation. It soon dawned on me who these were, and I couldn't possibly imagine how this had happened to them. Whatever was happening here was beyond the understanding of an ordinary person. This wasn't just another universe. This was something much more terrible. Feeling overwhelmed by the terrible sight and wanting to spew out the contents of my stomach, I soon began moving away from the compartment of faces and away from the fleshy hallway, making my way back up towards the cockpit. I rushed in to find that the skeleton of a human sat in the commander's seat and worked the various controls around it. Like everything else that has happened so far, it was unnatural and it defied all the logic that I knew. As I watched it for a few more seconds, I noticed it sputter something as its jaw moved up and down with each sound. Trying my best to listen, I heard it repeat the same line over and over. We must get out. We must get out. We must get out. The voice sounded familiar and my eyes soon widened as I recognized who it was. It was Commander Johnson's voice. I was shocked to see what had happened to him, but I no longer questioned how he turned into a skeleton. This place, this universe, it was doing things to people. It seemed that it did not like our entry into its realm. Against my better judgment, I decided to slowly float behind it, moving closer and closer. As I moved towards him, I tried to call out to him, but there was no response. Instead, he just repeated the same line that he had been muttering. We must get out. We must get out. Once I was floating just behind his seat, I cautiously patted him on the shoulder, trying to get his attention. I then saw his skull swivel and thought that he finally had noticed me. However, instead of facing me, his hollow eye sockets instead turned towards one of the monitors on the control panel. And this monitor was for one of the cameras facing towards the aft, and as I gazed towards it, I saw nothing. All that was there was empty space. Switching my glance back towards the skeletal form of the commander, I looked on as he continued on staring at the screen. However, this time he was quiet. I didn't know what to do or what to say. Everything that has happened so far has been terrifying and exhausting. When the commander finally spoke again, he said something different from his earlier muttering. It's coming after us. It's coming after us. The sentence chilled through my spine as my heart began to raise. I glanced towards the screen once more, but still saw nothing but the darkness of space. 
This frightened me even more, as the fear of the unknown made the situation feel much worse. For a moment I wondered what exactly the commander was seeing. With this universe capable of doing things beyond our simple comprehension, there was no telling what it could produce to come after us. Images of gigantic, planet-sized beings or engulfing black holes came into my mind, but I knew that this place was capable of making horrors much worse than that. Eventually, a call through the comms by Harold interrupted me from my thoughts, as I heard his concerned voice through my headset. Commander, this is Harold. Are you there? Uh, the commander is busy at the moment. I decided to reply, thinking that he also shouldn't be distracted from the task of repairing the drive. I know this was a stupid and selfish thing to do, but it also spared me the great effort of explaining the unbelievable horrors through the comms. It would be better and easier for them to understand if I told them face to face, so I thought that it was best for them to wait until they were done with their task. Oh, well, is Diane over there with you too? This worried me. No, I said. Isn't she still there in the drive compartment? She's supposed to be, but when I got back with the replacement parts, she was gone. So I assumed she went back there to check on something and... Wait a minute, hold on. My worry was beginning to increase now as I moved back towards my cockpit seat to check the monitor that displayed a lice view of the drive compartment. Checking the room, I saw Harold float from one corner of the room and inspect a portion of the drive. Trying to see what he was looking at, I noticed that the previously blown up portion of the part was now covered by a fleshy substance. Due to the camera angle, I couldn't see exactly what was plastered on the fleshy substance, but the sight of it clearly had spooked Harold as he backed away towards the corner of the room. There's a face on the drive. He screamed through the comms. What? I said, although I could already imagine what he was seeing. I already had an idea of whose face it may be. In my mind, it couldn't have been too different to what I saw at the lower crew decks. Before he could reply, I suddenly felt myself being gently pushed back against my seat, as I saw Harold drift towards one of the walls of the compartment. Surprised by this, I scanned the panels to see what was happening, and quickly realized that the four propulsion engines at the rear had been ignited and set to 100% power. Confused, I looked around and eventually looked towards the skeletal form of Commander Johnson to realize that he had engaged the engine and was now pushing the whole spacecraft forward, propelling the spacecraft forward. Looking ahead to see where he was pushing us towards, I saw that my floating head outside the spacecraft was now pressed against the cockpit window. I don't know how it managed to stay in that one spot, yet it somehow did. And from there, it stared at me with the same soulless gaze from earlier. Trying my best to not be trapped into the cycle of staring back at those eyes for too long, I tried to look past the head to see what lay ahead of us. But there wasn't anything there. It was only empty space. The same emptiness that surrounded us on all sides. However, despite the emptiness, the commander seemed to be seeing as something in it. We must get out, we must get out, he said, as his white bony arms began moving across the control panel, while his thin, skeletal fingers began flipping switches. Observing him as he worked, 
and too confused and scared to do anything else, I soon realized that he was activating the drive. For a moment, this made me wonder if the drive was fully operational, and Diane and Harold had not been able to replace the blown portion, and I was unsure if the strange occurrence that had happened to it counted as a repair. But the commander did not think of that and did not seem to care. Instead, he kept on muttering the same line over and over again as he worked through the necessary procedure to activate the drive. Sitting there next to him, I allowed him to continue. It felt like we had no other choice. It seemed better to try the drive and die attempting to escape than remaining stranded in this universe of horrors. Eventually, the commander got the drive to power up and this immediately resulted in an awful scream to run through the whole spacecraft. Initially, I didn't know where it came from. The terrible, agonized scream seemed to be emitting from everywhere. Pain and terror seemed to be contained in it as it grew louder and louder. As it kept on rising, as the drive continued to power up, a small realization hit me. Managing to look towards the monitor that observed the drive compartment, I caught a glimpse of what was happening there and saw that the fleshy substance in the drive was starting to smoke. To me, it looked like meat on a heated pan. At that moment, I felt sorry for Diane. The pain she must be feeling must have been unbearable. To be burnt alive like that was something I wished I would never experience. Her screaming eventually reached its highest point once the drive was in full power. I wanted the terrible, pained cries to stop, but there was no way of doing that. So instead, I tried to distract myself by staring out to our front to see that my head was still pressed against the cockpit window. However, instead of the dark emptiness of the void surrounding us, a familiar flash of bright colorful lights had now replaced it. I felt ecstatic and hopeful once that I saw it. It was working. The drive was working. For a moment, I managed to shut out the cries of Diane and instead felt joy shoot through me. We were finally leaving this universe. The horrors that it had brought would finally be gone. Feeling the spacecraft shake as the drive did its work, I let my mind be lost in happiness in the thoughts of home. Watching with glee, I looked on as the pressed hat in the cockpit had disappeared, as a bright flash of all colors engulfed my new view. Feeling myself be shoved forward, I was then violently thrust forward. Since I was not able to strap myself before the drive was activated, my body was flung forward as well, as my helmet smashed against the control panel. This resulted in my visor breaking, sending shards of sharp material to my face. Feeling the stinging pain of the cuts, I instinctively brought my hand to my face to check my wounds. As I did this, a realization hit me. My hand was touching my face. Instantly, this made me pat every portion of my face, and I was relieved to have my head on me again. I felt even more relieved when I saw a familiar white moon just outside the window. Smiling, I then turned towards the commander. However, the sight of him made me frown. His suit was gone and he was completely naked, but that was not the worrying part. Although he was no longer a skeleton, his body was severely thin. He looked like he was malnourished as if there were no fat or muscle between his skin and bone. Looking towards me, 
We locked eyes for a couple of seconds before he turned his head towards the monitor. That looked towards the aft of the spacecraft. Briefly, his eyes went towards the monitor that showed the drive compartment before he suddenly pressed himself back against his seat. It's coming after us. He muttered his final words as the sounds of various alarms echoed inside the cockpit. With that, Commander Johnson had died. He had brought us home, but not everybody had made it. Just like the commander, the four crew members at the lower deck and Diana died. All of them were returned to their original forms, but a quick examination of their bodies showed that their insides were not in the right place. Bones poked at all the wrong places and a quick x-ray of their bodies revealed that their organs were also in the wrong spots. Diane also had her insides in the wrong places, but it was much harder to tell due to her changed body. I somehow got lucky that I didn't have any permanent damage, while Harold was even luckier for not having been affected by the universe. I assumed that we had managed to get out just in time before it could target him. But sadly, I don't think our hardships are over yet. When we made it back to our universe, the propulsion engines the commander had engaged were still in 100% power. By the time that I had turned all four of them off, its push had already slingshotted us out of the orbit of the moon. Calculations from the navigational computer show that we are currently in a trajectory that would make these spacecraft enter the Earth's atmosphere. This spacecraft is a dedicated interuniversal explorer, and it was never meant to enter the atmosphere. Because of that, Harold and I know that we would burn it up even if we don't do anything. However, a simple course correction currently cannot be done. The vessel took damage during the last job, which resulted in the damage to five compartments, the reaction control system, and the communications. Harold is trying to repair the reaction control systems, while I'm working on the communication systems. If I'm successful, then maybe we can get a hold of NASA, who can then aid us in the repair of the reaction controls. However, it's been two days since we began our work and we don't seem to be anywhere near close to getting any of the systems operational. At the moment, we have less than 24 hours left before these spacecraft will enter the atmosphere. With the possibility of failure being high, I decided to type this message out. I'll be saving this in these spacecraft's main memory banks. If we fail to save ourselves, I hope that at least this message will survive. I want everyone back on Earth to know what we endured. The US Space Force was the first to see the spacecraft. For three days they tried to contact it, but they got no reply. Because of that, they could do nothing but watch as it entered the atmosphere like a meteor. Few people saw the spacecraft burn up over the Pacific Ocean. However, just to be sure, Space Force still made an announcement that the falling debris was from an old communication satellite that they deliberately deorbited and crashed into the ocean. Almost immediately after the crash site was located, the US government worked fast in order to recover the debris in order to answer the mountain of questions that many officials had. However, recovery of the debris only opened up more questions. You see, NASA doesn't have a program focused on crossing universes. They never had one in the past and they don't have one now. In fact, they don't even plan to do one in the future. 
A search through all of NASA's programs revealed that there is no such thing as a Philadelphia Drive or an interuniversal exploration spacecraft by the name of Heart of Gold. As a member of the NASA team investigating the debris of the spacecraft, I was among a select group of people trying to figure out where these spacecraft had come from. Because of this, I was able to read the terrifying message and watch the awful footage found in a memory card stored in a heat-proof capsule. This capsule, along with other pieces of debris, were recovered from the bottom of the ocean near Point Nemo. For six months, a joint NASA and Space Force operation worked to recover and study the debris. This was a secret operation, since the government didn't want to worry the public about a spacecraft that had come out of nowhere. However, I'm going to break the secrecy because there is something the world needs to know. All eight bodies of these spacecraft's crew were recovered. All of them were deceased and scorched from their entry through the atmosphere. However, a couple of days ago, one of the bodies went missing from the cold storage chamber that it was kept in. Surveillance footage shows the body getting up and slipping past security, and then managed to leave the Space Force facility that it was in and disappear into the countryside. I'm posting this to warn everybody that something from outside our universe is now roaming our planet, and there's no telling what it plans on doing. I work for an agency that hunts monsters. We are the last defense against Doomsday. Written by Doomed Geek. I had recently graduated from an Ivy League university and corporate headhunters were swarming around me. They were promising me big bucks with all the health plan trimmings. They were talking about unique opportunities with market leaders in careers that most people could only dream of. All I had to do was sign up with them. The problem was, everything they were trying to sell me left me cold. I wanted something different but for the life of me, I didn't know what that was. And then the agency got in touch with me. I was in a cafe on my 10th coffee of the day, staring at the screen of my laptop and no longer really seeing anything, when a woman sat down opposite me. I had no idea who she was. She was in her 40s and had short, dark hair. A scar ran the length of one of her cheeks. I was trying not to stare at it when she said, in five minutes, a car is going to pull up outside, and you have a choice. You can stay here and from everything I know about you, go on to have a very successful life. But if you do that, you'll always be wondering, what if? Where would the car have taken me? What could my life have been, if only I had taken a chance and stepped into the unknown? As I sat there, listening, my pulse began to raise. My skin was tingling all over, and for the first time in my safe, privileged life, I felt truly alive. A car pulled up, a perfectly ordinary looking car with a perfectly ordinary looking man in the driver's seat. I went for it. I took the chance. As the car left my hometown, a ripple of doubt passed through me, but that was all. My parents were divorced and distant from me in every way and I realized that I had no friends that I would miss. I was 22 and free and had done something completely crazy. 
It was all that I could do not to holler with joy. Instead, I put on a poker face and watched the world as slipping by. The driver turned the radio on, a country and western station, which wasn't my style, but I didn't object. It was seriously hot outside, and looking like it was only getting hotter as the buildings thinned out and we headed into open land. Soon, withered trees, the occasional run-down diner, and the skeletons of broken-down trucks were the only things between us and the horizon. The air conditioner was on in the car. Its quiet rattle accompanied the music. Every now and then, the signal would cut out as we entered a dead zone for reception, but then the music crackled back, and the singers were still lonesome and blue. When after a couple of more hours, the car pulled up at what looked like a derelict gas station. I guessed it was because the driver wanted to take a comfort break. The restroom in the station would be grim, but maybe to the driver it was better than going in the middle of nowhere. He turned off the engine, the air conditioner rattled one last time, and a slide guitar was cut off in its prime. And then the ground beneath us gave way and we began to descend. I whistled softly through my teeth. We were in the shaft of an oversized elevator, and after about 30 seconds, we had reached the end of the line. Doors opened in front of us, and the driver told me to disembark. It was the first thing that he had said to me. I stepped out into an open space to be met by a waft of pleasingly cooled air. The space looked to have been hewn out of rock to create an underground chamber. Another woman was standing there. She had no visible scars, but she did have a clipboard. Very retro, I thought, as she held it out in front of me with one hand and offered me a pen with the other. There was a single sheet of paper attached to the board, with a tightly packed text and a small font on it. What does it say? I asked. That you will keep everything that happens to you from now on a secret, she replied. I signed on the dotted line and asked, What's next? Is there a medical? So you can check if I'm up to scratch physically. She shook her head. There's no need. Your personal medical records were accessed and evaluated before you were approached. You've also been under constant observation for the last month. We know everything that we need to know about you. My poker face wavered but held firm. Now, she said, I'll show you to the training center. The next eight weeks were painful. For 16 hours a day, I was subjected to an intensive fitness program. The weights and the squats and the contortions that had no name I knew of blurred into one. My muscles were screaming at me to stop, but I would not. For light relief, I was plunged into ice baths and pummeled on a massage table. I was fed a flavorless gunk and I passed out rather than going to sleep. I also had no mobile phone, no access to the internet, no contact with the outside world. It was harsh and I did my best to soak it up. Then, after two months underground, I began learning different methods of combat. A dizzying combination of sophisticated martial arts taught by life, hard-looking men and women. Apart from one instructor, who looked like he had spent the last decade in an all-you-can-eat buffet, he taught me how to brawl with no rules and no move too dirty. I grew to like him. 
I never found out his name, though, or anything personal about him. Everyone who put me through my paces was strictly business. That was the way of the agency. I heard it called that by an instructor a few days into my training, and I never heard it called anything else as my training had progressed. That was fine by me. I assumed more would become clear in the near future, and I was not disappointed. I had showered in the minuscule bathroom attached to my sleeping quarters and had made my way to the training center. The woman who had met me on my first day was waiting for me. She said, You finished your basic training and today we're going to explain what you'll be doing for us. That was it. She was all about the business. I followed her along a corridor that I had never been down. Like I sleeping quarters in the training center, it looked to have been hewn out of the rock which surrounded us. Apart from lights that fitted overhead, there were no adornments. We walked for about 20 minutes until the corridor opened up into a vast area. Once again, my poker face was challenged. Everywhere that I looked, equipment was stacked from floor to ceiling. Monitors, keyboards, hard drives, blinking lights. Wires and reams of printed out paper hummed in word and cluttered. And people wearing white lab coats moved about, peering up at screens and pressing buttons. Some were deep in conversation. Others looked lost in their own mental space. The phrase that sprung to mind was Nerd Central. It looked like somebody had dumped the contents of a hundred bargain basement computer stores into a big hole in the ground, added dozens of scientists from Central Casting, and jumbled the whole thing together. It was impressive, but also chaotic. An impression that was reinforced by the sight of a golf buggy trundling slowly towards us. Its driver had a shock of white hair and wore a brightly colored checked waistcoat under his own lab coat. He came to a halt just before I was about to move my toes out of the way and chuckled. Welcome to the action, he said and got out of the buggy and shook my hand. This, he said, is the information gathering and processing hub. It's taken decades to construct and while we're still fine tuning one or two things, I would say that we have created an eighth wonder of the world here. His eyes started to glaze over, but then he snapped back into focus. We collate information about economic, political, social, and meteorological trends and much more. Birth rates and death rates, CO2 emissions, changes in bird migration patterns, debt levels, droughts and floods, and TV viewing patterns are just some of the facts that we handle. Our remit is as broad as the world of today is splintered into countless conflicting issues. We have information that is available to academics and scientists and other institutions. But what gives us the edge is that we also have access to data gathered more, shall we say discreetly, through phone taps, surveillance, access to private and corporate bank accounts and the like. Our purpose in doing all of this is to monitor and understand the threats facing our civilization. We're collectively destroying ourselves, you see, inching closer to global destruction. Our work here gives us razor-sharp clarity on the state of play. He took a deep breath. For all its doom and gloom, I got the feeling that he rather enjoyed giving his little speech. Though this wasn't at all news to me. I think I've heard of this, I said. It's called the Doomsday Clock, isn't it? White hair didn't look impressed and I immediately regretted opening my mouth. You were on completely the wrong track, 
he said. The doomsday clock of which you speak is a limited exercise in public relations. It's a navel gazing and will never achieve anything. Here, you see all around you the real doomsday clock. The mechanism by which the truth is revealed to us. And we don't put out press releases about this. We take measures to counteract the threats. And each time we do, we can push the hands of the clock back. We move humanity a little further away from complete catastrophe. We are, in short, saving the world one moment at a time. That struck a chord with me. This was out there excitement. Now, he went on, it's time for you to find out where you fit into this. Please follow me and all will become clear. Saying this, he hopped back onto his golf buggy, turned the on switch and whirled slowly away. I looked around at the woman, but at some point she had left, so I set off after the golf buggy on my own. I caught up with it as white hair was parking up in front of a huge screen. This was showing images of the inside of a shopping mall. I recognized a number of well-known outlets but could not have placed where the mall was. It could have been in any city in the country. There were no people in sight, so I figured wherever this was, it was after hours. White hair was staring up at the screen and did not look away as he spoke. This is where you will come in once your training is completed. You see, it's not just a man-made threats or one posed by the natural world that are edging us closer to annihilation. There is also the threat posed by the unnatural world, by the monsters which stalk this earth. Their presence causes danger and instability in the more hideous creatures that roam free, the more danger that we all are in of entering an endless apocalypse. So, it is of vital importance that monsters, wherever they're found, are eliminated so that the hands of the clock can be pushed back. And there are monsters all around us. His voice trailed off as a man appeared in one corner of the screen. He moved unsteadily, shuffling forwards. His shoulders were hunched, his arms dangled by his side, his mouth hung open. There was a speaker running the length of the base of the screen, but there was no volume accompanying the images, so I couldn't hear what he was saying. As he moved closer to the camera, his face came fully into focus. I forgot about the scene being on mute. His skin was drained of color and his features were contorted into an expression of rage that made me think of a rabid animal. He was out of control, a cauldron of anger. And he was not alone. More men and women all acting in the same warped way were coming into view. What are they? I asked in a shaky voice. Still not taking his eyes off the screen, white hair replied, Zombies. A threat that multiplies rapidly and exponentially, as long as they find somebody to bite it in fact. Luckily the mall is empty, but they cannot be allowed to leave. And suddenly the view changed. It must have been a different camera. We were looking at one of the zombies, face on and in close up. A red dot appeared in his forehead and then, quick as a flash, he was falling backwards, his arms flailing. Another man shuffled into view, and once again a point of red light fell into his forehead. Just as quick, he was falling. It was a sniper, I knew. Somebody was taking them out. The view switched back to a wider perspective and one by one they were taken out. I was standing there shocked by what I had just witnessed when a distorted voice came from the speaker. 
The targets have been eliminated. You can push back the clock. Whitehair nodded and moved to a console to one side of the screen, and then got busy tapping keys. He seemed to forget about me after this, so I made my own way back to the training center, where I was presented with a new program to immerse myself in. I pored over manuals on myths and legends and accompanying volumes explaining what was true, and what elaboration. I studied grimoires and codices whose ancient vellum pages were bound in thick leather volumes, marked with bizarre symbols. I watched recordings of terrified eyewitnesses, some of who wore stray jackets, while others who were in military uniforms. Another month passed in this way, until I was thoroughly versed in the monsters that I might face once I was in the field. As a sideline to my academic studies, I was also trained in the use of a number of archaic weapons that would be required for dispatching my foes. And finally, my training was complete and I found myself ascending the lift, to be met by a perfectly ordinary looking car parked up by the derelict gas station. I had been told that I was going to be stationed at a hot spot and I was driven back through the desert. Just before dusk, we had entered a city. Sirens rose and fell all around me as we moved through a maze of streets until we arrived at a small nondescript office block. A man was waiting for me on the sidewalk. He was older than me by at least a decade and the top of his left ear was missing. He wore a cheap pinstriped suit and trainers and smelled as though he bathed in deodorant. I'm your partner, he said. He had a southern accent and the words came out slow and easy. His phone buzzing in his pocket added an urgency to things. He checked the screen in and then looked at me. It's time, he said, for your first assignment. I smiled. I couldn't help myself. This is what I had been training for. My pulse was racing with anticipation as, minutes later, we sped in his car towards the alleyway. Our target had been picked up entering the alleyway by one of the thousands of cameras which monitored the city. This had set off an alert, and we were now arriving at the scene. It was a blisteringly hot night, and I was already wiping sweat out of my eyes as I stepped out of the car and entered the alleyway alongside my partner. Trash lay everywhere, glass cracked underfoot and clouds of flies and gathered over rotting waste, brushed against our skin as we moved through them. To our left, there is a body, a man dressed in rags, lying on his front. My partner told me to cover him and then approached and turned the body onto its back. Despite the heat, a chill had settled over me. The front of the body was covered in bite marks, and its eyes were open and I could see the terror in them. My hands started to tremble, and I clenched them in the fist to try and hide this while my partner indicated that we should move on. We left the body where it was and continued our pursuit. The only light in the alleyway bled in from the full moon high above us. I was taking deep breaths while trying to calm myself. My partner was slightly ahead and to my right. He raised a hand and I paused and then I saw it. In the gloom, a dozen feet in front of me, my guts tightened. The wolf stared at us, its dark eyes blazing with anger. Blood speckled the fur around its snout and as its mouth drew back into a snarl, I could see more blood staining its fangs. Its back was arched also and its claws extended. It had just killed the man in the alleyway and it looked to me like it was ready to kill again. 
I turned to glance at my partner, knowing that I needed to take my lead from him if I was going to survive this encounter. To my amazement, he smiled at the wolf and then said, Not much meat on your last meal, eh, boy? There's slim pickings around here when the poor folks live. You should come with me. I can get you a nice, juicy steak. Just a dripping crimson and still warm. The way you wear freaks like it. He reached into his jacket as he spoke, where he carried silver that could end the wolf and the curse. And with a swift and smooth movement, he drew and the alleyway was filled with noise, and the wolf was falling and howling and twisting, and its paws were clawing in the air. Only now they were fingers and it was a man whose face was contorted in agony. A man who grew still, and then lay unmoving on the ground. The smile had left my partner's face. He spoke into his phone. Target's been eliminated. You can push the clock back. After this first assignment, the encounters with monsters came thick and fast. In less than a year, I completed 89 assignments. And in the blink of an eye, assignment number 90 was in progress. We were driving at speed towards a warehouse. It was located close to the docks, and not so long ago this had been a neglected crime-ridden area, but now it was being transformed into a trendy place to live and work. Art studios and bistros were popping up everywhere, and once derelict buildings were being converted into expensive apartments. The warehouse was a prime location for the property developers, only it had appeared from the camera footage that had brought us there that there was already a resident in place and undesirable. I reviewed the footage on my phone. A dark shape had swooped into view before it disappearing into a broken window. It was larger than any bird of prey and much more deadly. We parked by a sign saying premises guarded 24 hours a day and within minutes another vehicle appeared. Its paint job resembled a police cruiser and the men who climbed out were probably ex-cops. Their guts hung over their belts now and a sweat shone on their flabby faces. My partner smiled his most charming smile and held out his ID. It was fake. It said that we were from pest control at the city council. You got yourselves an infestation here, boys. He drawled. But it's nothing for you to concern yourself with. Taking care of the critters is our specialty. These security officers did not even bother checking the ID closely. They were clearly happy that they could get back in their car and drive off without having to do anything more. Left on our own outside the warehouse, we took the equipment that we would need from the trunk of the car and headed inside. Dawn was breaking, but the light had yet to creep into the warehouse. It was a shell, still waiting for the builders to move in. Our target was nestled in the corner asleep. We approached as stealthily as possible. The crossbow that I carried could fire a wooden stake at velocity, but the accuracy over distance was not the best. Closer was better. And soon, we were at an optimum distance and the target had not stirred. Its wings were folded over its head and torso. Only the pale skin of its legs and feet were visible. This was an issue. The stake needed to penetrate the heart. My partner checked and I was ready and then yelled, Rise and shine. The vampire's wings flew open and it shot to its feet. Its face was a hideous mix of human and bat and it was completely hairless. It was one ugly son of a gun, 
and now its mouth was curling up into a snarl, revealing sharp and vicious-looking teeth. Now I released the trigger my aim was true. Before I had even drawn my next breath, the vampire had started to break down into dust. Job done, I thought, until something struck my partner and sent him crashing into the wall. I took out a new stake, and he tumbled around on the floor, trying desperately to defend himself from the vampire, which had come out of nowhere and attacked him. We hadn't seen it when we had entered and assumed there was only one target. A stupid mistake. And possibly the last one that my partner would ever make. I raised my crossbow. He was entangled with the vampire, whose fangs were inches away from his neck. Which meant that I didn't have a clean shot and I risked fatally injuring him. But he was dead in seconds anyway if I didn't act. Thankfully, an opportunity had presented itself when they rolled in front of one of the broken windows. I threw myself at both of them. My momentum carried the three of us through the window, and we landed with a jolt on the ground outside. The vampire rose to its full height, its wings outstretched, and then screamed, ready to finish us off. But its bloodlust had clouded its thoughts, and we watched as the light of the early morning sun had caught its skin, and the smoke began to rise. The vampire screamed again, but this time in shock and pain. It was burning. The stench of its flesh as it was consumed by the daylight was nauseating, and we both covered our mouth and noses as the vampire collapsed to its knees and then fell. Soon there was nothing left but ashes. I swallowed down bile and called it in. Another battle had been won, but the war continued relentlessly. Within a few more months, I was already closing in on my 200th assignment. I felt like a veteran by then. I had some seriously cool scars and sometimes I woke up screaming in the night. But I lived in a penthouse apartment by now so that wasn't too much of a problem for the neighbors. The latest alert had brought us to a subway station. The commuters around us paid no attention to my partner and me as we descended the steps into the subway. The target had been picked up by a camera on the edge of a public area. It was making its way along the tracks heading to an old part of the subway. We located a service door, broke the lock open, and made our way along an access corridor before emerging onto a platform that was no longer used. It was silent and dark until a train rattled past along a nearby line that was still active. Lights from the train flashed through a steel mesh fence separating the old line from the new and illuminated the platform on which we stood. The graffiti was faded and the turnstiles rusted. Pages from an old newspaper lay on the track just a few feet away from me, and something moved. There, I whispered, and pointed at the disused tracks where they had entered a tunnel. My partner jumped on off the platform and onto the tracks. The current no longer ran here, so it was safe. As far as not being electrocuted or run over by a train went, though, different dangers awaited for us down the line. We walked in single file, my partner taking the lead. He was sweeping the beam of the torch on his phone along the tracks in front of him. Otherwise, we would have been moving blind. We weren't worried about this losing us any element of surprise. The target that we were pursuing sensed the world through vibration, and it must have already known that we were coming. We had been walking for a couple of minutes when my partner came to a halt and muttered, It's a family reunion. 
and I peered over his shoulder. Even after all the assignments that I'd been on, I was still not immune to shock or fear. This was a good thing. It helped keep me alive. And at that moment in time, I needed all the help that I could get. The tunnel in front of us was crawling with hundreds of giant cockroaches. The target had picked up by the camera had been around five feet long. The freaks of nature confronting us varied in size, but they were all equally hideous. The agency believed they were the result of the toxicity flowing through the sewers and the gutters, and falling in the rain itself. Chemicals that would have harmed some creatures, but not the good old boy that was the city cockroach. They had bulked up on the filth. My partner spat on the ground at his feet and muttered, I hate bugs. And then he turned tail and he ran. We had not been anticipating this many mutant roaches and a head-on attack by just the two of us was out of the question. So I assumed as I raced to catch up with my partner that he had a new plan. And glancing back at the tide of cockroaches now chasing us, I very much hoped that he did. He was speaking on his phone and yelling that he wanted cooperation, not question. Due to our covert nature, the agency could not pull ranks over other official bodies, but our many aliases could be called into play. Whoever my partner was claiming to be, he was clearly kicking some bureaucratic butts into action. When we had reached the abandoned stop, he did not clamber back up onto the platform but kept running. Heading, I realized with alarm, straight for where the tracks became live again. The 660 volts of electricity flowing through the third central track, it would fry a good few bugs. It would also kill the both of us instantly. My partner was showing no signs of slowing though. I glanced back over my shoulder. Neither were the roaches. They were crawling over each other and clambering up the sides and out of the ceiling of the tunnel. If they caught up to us, we would be completely covered in bugs. They would crush and suffocate the life out of us. I ran faster. Eventually, I caught up with my partner. He pointed ahead at a stationary train and said, in between gaps for breath, I ordered an empty train to be brought here pronto and for the power to be turned off for long enough for us to make it on board. The driver is bailed up but left a door open for us. Now come on, hurry. I didn't hesitate. The first of the roaches were within inches of my feet. We sprinted towards the train and clambered on board, and then ran the length of the train. The roaches followed and soon they were filling the train, an unstoppable rush of grotesque bugs. We reached the driver's cab at the far end of the train and, with us both inside, my partner slammed the door shut. That'll hold him long enough, he said. Now, how do you drive one of these things? I answered by frantically pushing buttons until I got the train started and we began to move, taking our mutant passengers along with us. The train rattled forward past platforms packed with commuters who were too busy looking at their phones to notice that it was packed full of giant cockroaches. Then we followed the curve of the track into a siding where other empty trains were pulled up waiting for maintenance and cleaning. We screeched to a halt and my partner led the way out of a hatch in the front of the train where we jumped back onto the safety of a platform. A stairway in front of us took us back upwards towards the surface. What now? I called. There is going to be an explosion, he said. The only damage will be to a number of empty trains. At least that's what it'll say in the news. 
I couldn't see his face, but I could imagine the smile there. The bugs were going to be obliterated, and once more the clock would be pushed back. We reached street level and were standing with our hands on our knees trying to catch our breath, as the sound of an explosion reverberated below us. Job's done, I thought. And then both our phones buzzed. A target had been identified on another section of the subway. The closest entrance was a quarter mile dash away. When we got there, people were pouring up out of the subway. Presumably the officials who ran the system were evacuating as a precaution. Following the explosion, our shady colleagues in the agency had just caused. We pushed our ways through and descended back into the subway. There was a train at the platform and only one commuter still on board. Our target. A camera had picked them up as they had fluctuated in size, their entire body bloating and then deflating. Very much not natural behavior. We stepped onto the train. I took out a fake ID. Ticket inspector, I said. The commuter looked at me. He was incandescent with rage. That much was clear from his expression. It's a disgrace, he said, his voice shaking with anger. I pay my taxes and the rip-off ticket prices so I can get to work on time. But am I ever on time? No. Because of this lousy, incompetent, corrupt service. As his tirade built, I could see his body start to swell. His skin was rippling as well. There seemed to be a tremendous pressure building inside him. And it looked like something was about to give. His head was the first to go. It split open in a line beginning at his chin and running up his scalp to reveal the monster which waited within. It was covered in reptilian-like scales and as it shrugged to free of the covering of human skin, it towered over my partner and me. Its mouth bristled with obscenely sharp teeth from which drool dripped and it was roaring. My partner swore, oh, first bugs and now a shapeshifter. How many mirrors do you break with your ugly face this morning? And he was actually grinning as he looked at me and said this. I tried to think of something snappy to say back. Big mistake. I had taken my eye off the ball and for a second, but that was all it took for the shapeshifter to lash out at me with one of its scaly arms. I felt pain explode in my guts where its blow connected and then watched a light show play out of my head against a background of darkness, which spread until there was nothing else. I came round in intensive care. I hadn't known it was possible to feel so much pain. It was more than I could bear, but lying there with tubes sticking out of me and connected up to machines monitoring my vital signs, I had no choice. I begged for my meds to be opt, but I was told that any more painkillers than I was already been given would be fatal for me. The time was all messed up in my trash state, and I don't know whether it was a few days or a few weeks later that my partner had visited. He looked sad. I managed to tell him that things weren't as bad as they had looked. The effort of speaking cost me a whole lot of pain, but it was worth it, as it brought a wiry smile to his face. I prepared myself for a new set of hurts and then asked him, What happened? Well, the shapeshifter happened, he replied. It hit you with all its strength, and then grabbed you and began to bang you against the side of the train again and again. I managed to stop it and I took it out for good, but you were badly broken up. The medics weren't sure you'd pull through. The smile in his face had fallen away by now. It's not a problem, I said, 
As soon as I'm back on my feet, I'll be out there with you, saving the world one monster at a time. He didn't say anything, wouldn't look me in the eye, and I knew something was very wrong. It turned out to be me. I had sustained multiple fractures and permanent damage to internal organs when the shapeshifter had attacked me. And while I would be able to live an independent life, I would never be able to go on assignment again. After six months in the hospital, I was discharged. There was a car waiting for me outside, driven by a stranger. He told me that he was taking me back to my hometown. The agency had deposited enough money in my account that I could move from there to anywhere I wanted and start afresh. But it was an excellent starting point, they believed. The driver relayed this information to me and finished by saying, A bit of home cooking and familiar sights will do you the world of good. I sat in silence as he drove me away from the life that I'd known before I was injured. The life that was all I wanted and took me back to nothingness. That was a year ago and I'm still in my hometown. I haven't reached out to anyone I used to know. I live in a near empty apartment and don't speak to other people. I in order the few things I need online and have them left outside the door. In the day I scan the news channels and it's only at night that I leave the apartment. I move real slow and have no choice. I am in constant pain no matter how much I self-medicate. It still hurts as well, the way the agency discarded me. They threw me aside like I was so much as garbage. That makes me angry, and anger is good. It helps me keep going through the pain and the loneliness. I have to keep going because I know the truth. We're moments away from oblivion. But while the clock is ticking, there's still hope. So I walk the streets of this town hunting monsters. I fight alone. Thank you all for tuning in to today's episode, and thanks for listening to the end. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.